This is a test of the emergency podcast system. Repeat, this is a test of the emergency podcast system. Hello and welcome to Disaster Girls, a podcast about disaster movies. I'm your host, Amanda Smith, and with me today, as always, is a guest. Guest, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, it's Jean, also known as Fangirl Jean, and I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Yeah, so tell us about uh, what you have brought today to the podcast. I have brought 2008's Doomsday, a UK, I, how do you, like, because it's almost, mm, like, what do you even, I don't even know, like, it's so difficult, like, because is it post-apocalyptic? Yeah, but like is it is it about a pandemic yes is it also about like does it also have like medieval vibes to it yes it does um I would say that it is a b-movie that went in knowing it was a b-movie and like but like brought it to a level that uh, like an a-list level of being a b-movie yeah They, they this is a movie that fully committed this was yes, a movie that fully yes. committed to everything that it was like, you know what, if I'm going to give you, if we're going to give you a post-apocalyptic wasteland, we're going to give you a post-apocalyptic wasteland with extended sequen- Mad Max sequences. If we're going to give you a weird medieval post-apocalyptic world, there's also going to be full extended sequences of that. None of this is half-assed. And I got to respect that about the movie. Right? Like, yeah. I, I really haven't seen a B-movie do so beautifully with with content that sounds silly on paper but like it's so beautiful in execution since um oh now i'm gonna forget overlord okay which is a uh world war ii uh nazi exploitation zombie horror war film (laughs) oh my who are do the nazis become zombies yes oh that's great Great yeah, content. no, it's absolutely it is, it is. It's a newer take on the long history of Nazi exploitation, yeah. zombie uh, horror movies, but is done so well that it, it feels like a first person like Call of Duty game. Oh, cool. Like, okay. Very beautiful. Anyway, long story, separate thing. But yes, like, it's beautiful. Anyway. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I thought did- you were going to name check uh, Reign of Fire, which I still haven't seen. But oh, Rain that of was Fire, yes. Rain of Fire, which like I feel like this probably can be held in concert with that as the two Absolutely. movies about. And if if you are looking for someone to talk about Rain of Fire, let me. I saw it in the theater. This oh is my god! One of those things. Like I'm the kind of person that saw these kind of. I saw these trailers because long before the internet was as media media savvy as it is now, I used to go to the Apple.com website and look up new movie trailers there. Mm-hmm. on the QuickTime page and I saw the trailer and I told my friends I'm like we're gonna go to see this I don't know what you thought you were doing this weekend but we're gonna go see Kristen Bale and dragons eating people and it looks like Matthew McConaughey is playing a dwarf who's not actually a dwarf but he absolutely has stepped right out of Lord of the Rings yeah absolutely yeah. Anyway. <laughs> no, that's I I was just remnant like the minute you said go to the apple.com page and look at the quick time trailer, it's like I was just time travel sucked back into that moment. Right. Uh, but like, oh, that's that's a thing I forgot. But we did that. We, we did absolutely that. We used to do I if you were a nerdy little movie kid, yes, you would go and watch the trailers for things because that's where you could see them before like the super if you missed the TV commercial. 
Yes, and my yeah. lifeblood was the E Network before it became a reality TV oh. show gossip thing. Like, especially October on E was all of the greatest clips of horror movies. Like, uh, that was where I went to. Like, oh, what horror movie should I try to find at the video store this week? You know, a random weird thing are they posting on there? And yeah, and then yeah. you know you would get the weird like uh, little out of context clips because it was just you know late night programming and some dude was just putting on whatever they had in the archives <laughs> over the night yeah I know yeah. I'm oh I miss E I the soup was I was a the soup stan so, yeah, yeah 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 I it's it's no, weird like, to have this like nostalgia for something that wasn't so far away but is wasn't. culturally so far away now it's just very strange to have that dynamic of like oh this is never going to happen we're never going to have these things back again but like they weren't that long ago yeah I mean as as an old lady <laughs> I can tell you like it just increases like I, it really is true that sometimes my brain thinks that the 90s were just 10 years ago because I have such a clear you know recollection of all of these things and I was going to say I still have a difficult time taking Greg Kinnear seriously as an actor because like that was not how it was in, it to me. He was a snarky commentator on E. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whenever I see him, like especially if he plays a villain, I'm just like, but he's such a nice guy. He's so funny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he anyway. has such a good vibe to him. I know that is the Greg Kinnear problem is that he's got the the face of a douchebag and the personality of your nicest neighbor, and I feel like that's like just such a disconnect for people. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that's just that's always I know you know you can actors can act but you know, there's only so much and sometimes I just look I'm like no you just seem like the nice dude who I always see outside in slides walking his dog like I'm sorry you have the face of a day trader and then you have yeah right right yeah no yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay so I guess do you want to do you want to hit me with the summary of daylight uh just so we can kind of catch everybody up on what happened what daylight is oh doomsday doomsday no, it's hilarious because I just listened to your daylight episode. Words, meanings. Do you want to hit with wow. Doomsday? Let's try that again. I will give you a quick summary of Doomsday. Thank Doomsday you. Covers a uh, um. Well, okay. See, it is a action horror. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to try to categorize the genre. It don't doesn't need a genre. It is a movie about uh. A pandemic hitting the UK and uh, uh, located primarily in Scotland. And in order to control the outbreak, uh, the UK government uh, initiates a quarantine on pretty much all of Scotland and using the old Roman wall as, as a new border and close everybody in to save the rest of the the country from the pandemic. And then we are transported, I believe 25 years later, where uh, there's political unrest and and uh, economic hardship is creating another stew in which the, the disease has come back. And the government has revealed that they have evidence that there are survivors north of the wall. And so they send a special team in to <laughs> to go find survivors and hopefully a cure to save people, but also primarily to save the political powers of be from, from, uh, you know, you know, anyway, but, um, and the primary leader of the team is a young refugee 
from Scotland who was the last person to get out on a military uh, helicopter as a child who also lost her eye. Um, so yes, and she is a badass, cold, you know, I can't tell, I think she's a cop, but so like I put that in there, but I almost feel like she's like, it's, it's very like, I'm like, well, she's military trained, but she also seems to be a cop. Like I just put that she's a cop slash military person, but really she is, she is the dirty Harry of this world. She is the Clint Eastwood of this world. She is the snake Pliskin of this story, including only one eye, which is just, just beautiful. Yeah, it's I got it. She's got like that sort of post-apocalyptic like enforcement job where what are they? It don't, we don't know. Is she right. a cop? Is she special forces? It's sort of just she is. Um, right. And she's also got that like I'm burnt out because I know that the people that I work for are garbage. Yeah. And but you know, like I need a good cause. You know, yeah. Yeah, she's got like her one. So her 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 boss is Bob Hoskins, which doing like his normal accent which is just I can't it's such a it's such a mental jump for me because it sounds his accent sounds like Christian Bale's real accent you know Mm -hmm. and so we're Christian Bale when you hear him talk you're like that's that's not real you put that on right man and then Bob Hoskins talks and you're like is that actually what you sound like I was gonna say that people who are fans of Who Framed Roger Rabbit are just gonna have a lot of like cognitive dissonance while they watch him, which this role is actually much more indicative of his entire career as an actor, of being a very serious, um, you know, or playing in very, you know, dramatic roles and whatnot, and definitely like playing kind of like the street savvy, you know, doesn't or you know smoking you know almost uh noir uk noir type of guy which is so funny because again like his accent also you're like i feel like you're a cab driver <laughs> it's just <laughs> like it a really nice <laughs> he sounds like a chimney sweep I mean, in, in yeah. mary poppins yeah. like that's yeah. what it comes down to it's just and like i recognize that there's entire chunks of the uk that sound like that but i'm american so to me i'm just like no that's i'm sorry sir you sound like you should be dancing with penguins i don't know what to do with this Dick van dyke has done amazing things but he has definitely wrecked multiple generations of children's understanding of what working class london accents sound like oh absolutely it's just I mean, in my defense, the only times I like growing up that I heard those accents was Mary Poppins and uh, Oliver Twist. So, like, I don't know what they want me. Like, UK, you got to have better. Super, super common for most American audiences, really, yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. So, like, like, your PR needs to be, if you want me to take all of your, the, the wide range of your accents seriously, you're going to have to do better PR than that. Like, Fair. Absolutely fair. Like, yeah, you got to start like letting your folks or we have to start letting your folks actually use the regular accents in movies that we get wide distribution in America. Yeah. Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I need I I, I need it because like or yes, that's those two. And like then maybe Don Cheadle, like all of these accents sound to me. I know Don Cheadle's accent in Ocean's Eleven is supposed to be really bad. I, I compare I cannot tell that Don Cheadle is doing a worse accent than how Bob Hoskins sounds in this movie. And that's Bob Hoskins' voice. And it's not a criticism of Bob Hoskins. It's my own ignorance. <laughs> but well, like, to be fair, like, we again, like, you know, we have all of this beautiful 
wonderful diversity of, of actors that we're exposed to, but almost all of them do American accents yeah. or they do the one posh. The posh like, British accent. The posh, like James Bond, but not really accent, you know, but the Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. I went to a very nice boarding school for the dramatic arts type of accent. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it, but Bob Hoskins in this, it, he, like, in a fairly small role, but every time he comes on screen, it's just he's the most tremendous, which is why you get a Bob Hoskins for that role. But like. Right. Like the the that beautiful, like, it's rare that you see this and I wish we saw this more because I feel like this is the perfect like companion character for these strong women characters Mm -hmm. that we see where he is both a sidekick and a dad yeah right and he doesn't have to die spoiler alert yes he gets to be her feminist surrogate father that's cheering her on but also giving her shit but like, and I'm like, what? Like, there is this weird like gender issue whenever you have a woman that is a protagonist in a type of you know typically masculine coded role, where either um, you know the the man has to be a love interest, he has to be a father figure that dies, or he could be like the gay best friend, and yeah. like there's no ability to navigate the masculinity that can still be masculine while also being like a supporting role for a woman and I think this movie absolutely strikes it beautifully I think definitely that goes to credit for uh Neil Marshall who is the writer director of this film who definitely has shown in his other works like The Descent that he is uh, just really great at at directing stories about women where they're people yeah, it's the dynamic of her and and Bob Hoskins is so strong, partly because I, I like I agree about your your assessment of them as sort of like he's kind of the father figure, but there is never a sense of like concern for her well being in the sense that he never doubts he never doubts her capabilities or yes. he never is like but make sure you're safe. There's no cautioning. There's no sense that. He is concerned that he is going to put her into a position where she will not be safe, which there's something about that that's really, really like it's not, it, it it keeps it from slowing down. It keeps it from having this sort of like maudlin undertone. But then also just like, oh, what a vote of confidence too. like I immediately buy in that she's capable because her superior tells her that tells us that she's capable. Exactly. And he talks to her the way that in stereo the stereotypical genre men would talk to other men yeah like is it like there's no issue of him sensing that he has to be a protector and anytime he shows concern his concern is through a joking kind of taking the piss of talking shit and it, it shows an established relationship i would say like we call it like the cool uncle archetype oh i like that, that yeah. like you're right you know mm-hmm. that like like the beautiful like character building moment that is so quick of that she never buys cigarettes she always bums them off of him and that they have this reoccurring dialogue that's the same every time of like why don't you buy your own cigarettes why I can just get them from you and that like shows this type of relationship that is you know, very aware. And uh, like also that he is a safe place for when we finally do get to see her be emotionally vulnerable, that there is no, like, there's no hugging that would normally be in that kind of situation. It is a, I've given you time. I'm not, you're not ashamed of how you're 
you know, that you're crying. I'm not ashamed of how you're crying. I don't think that you need to be protected. I see that you just need a moment for this Mm -hmm. and it's all good. I know you're a person and not an object that I have to protect. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because, you know, now we've seen this rise of like the adult man, young teen girl dynamic, which like we've seen that over and over and over again in media. (laughs) I could talk about that. Yeah, I have a lot of things and thoughts and feelings on it. But like this feels so much more refreshing and feels like such a better version of that. And like partly because obviously they are to a degree equals, but also there's never it's really nice to see the guy on screen who doesn't sort of have the the what's the way I want to put this seem beleaguered by the fact that he has to take care of this person there's Mm -hmm. no resentment or like oh this is my burden but only I can do it there's a very the dynamic between them is not just this sort of paternal vibe but also there's a sense that they enjoy that he enjoys having her in his life and that's such a nice dynamic and like we see that kind of pay like you knew in the beginning that at some point she was going to end up back at the house, the address that her mother had given her. We don't you don't know when exactly it's going to happen. You know, it's going to inevitably happen. But having him come back at the end and just find her at the house and have a really nice moment with her and then leave her was just like, this is such a healthier version of a dynamic we're seeing play out over and over again in media currently. And I so enjoy spending time. I would so much rather spend six to eight episodes in that relationship versus most of the ones that we're seeing currently. Well, and I will tell you that like my TLDR on that, mm-hmm. that popularity of that trope with the older guy with a young girl is absolutely, that is men mm-hmm. negotiating how they deal with their vulnerability, which they code as feminine. So, and that, that it's very specific in that the reason we don't have that dynamic with a boy mm-hmm. is because men are socialized to uh to fear hate and strike out weakness when it's in the form of a boy of a masculine person but they can be kind and protective with a feminine person who's weaker than them and so that that dynamic offers them an opportunity to like to deal with a part of themselves which they code as feminine and to take care of it and protect it and to enact that kind of relationship which you know um <laughs> when you That's... then look at those relationships yeah rather than seeing her she's not a sexual object she's not even necessarily his child although a lot of people just kind of misconstrue it as a fathering thing and it's like no that is most often those characters are very alike that's why there's a bond there. And that is a man seeing himself, a child version of himself and being able to nurture and care for that child version of himself because it's not a boy. That's genuine. Like, yes, all of yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Everything you just said, because I like as you were speaking, I was just mentally interrogating, like, what would you know, what would 65 have looked like with a boy? And it's completely and it, it you're it obviously the daughter it, it, the girl plays a surrogate of the daughter but also you're right it's it's working through all these very soft emotions and the protection and all of that and it's also probably to a degree like i imagine you can't have a man protecting a soft vulnerable lady anymore so you got to have it be a soft vulnerable girl instead and oh man i have never really interrogated that trope that way but you're right right and like it and 
there is so much anxiety that men have about young boys that are vulnerable yeah. that, that they, that is internalized of like, I've got to make him strong. I've got to make him capable to protect himself. Sure. Like, therefore I can't be emotionally available to him. I can't be emotionally vulnerable with him because I won't be here because the only types of father son relationships I understand is that at the point I die, he better be ready for the world because I'm the Obi-Wan and he's the Luke Skywalker. And when I die, he's got to take over saving the rest of the universe. Like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. But yes, like in this relationship, you, this again, like one of the things I love about how um, Eden, that is the lead character's name, how she's treated in the story is that she is allowed to exist in the story in the exact same way that a man is. At, uh, even like in the way that the lens views her body, there are shots where like, you know, my queerness comes out and then I have notes where I just like in full scrawled letters, just shoulder blades. <laughs> like those beautiful shots of her body that are not about sexualizing her in a feminine sexualization. It's just look at this like strong body, this defined muscles. Yeah. Right. And like, and then also highlighting the the her complete lack of like weaponry in in certain situations that she's still incredibly capable fast thinking and that also appeals to like the incredible uh nerdy aspect of me that uh loves uh or hyper fixates you know love but hyper fixates on warfare through the ages and like military and fighting and we'll get into that when we get to that scene but but yeah like if like every shot she She's shot. That's why I keep coming back to Snake Plissken and Clint Eastwood. Even the way that she holds herself, mm -hmm. uh, the way that other people interact with her. I'm like, this, you could literally have Kurt Russell step into this role and it would just be another Snake Plissken movie of, you know, except that she doesn't have to get ribbing about her capabilities and jokes about her height because everybody's like, oh no, she's a badass. We can tell the minute she walked in, she's able to do this. Yeah, she's, I mean, Rona Mitra in this is just genuinely, she is so compelling in this. She is so just unbelievably hot. Like, just to be shallow for a second, she's <laughs> so beautiful. Be shallow. <laughs> she's so beautiful. And like, that shouldn't be shocking because all actors are beautiful. But like, she's one of the rare actors who gets hotter the dirtier she gets. Like she's got Vigo Mortensen syndrome where she just like the, the more sweaty and stringy her hair gets, the more you're like, God, this is what a human that is. What a specimen. She and Michael Sheen are the reason that I, again, saw Underworld Rise of the Lycans in the movie theater. And while it never realized the potential of what those two incredibly like beautiful human beings, incredibly talented actors getting super dirty and being sexual with each other. It never realizes what we could have had with that. Yeah, I could believe that she is an ageless vampire warrior princess. And I wish that we had like a 10 movie movie series about it because. If you <sighs> just told me that Rona Mitra is an ageless warrior vampire princess, I would believe you and like that she happened to take up acting like that's that's very believable to me just looking at her as a person. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. That is if you were like, what does a ageless warrior vampire princess look like? I'd, I'd probably describe someone who looks like Rona Mitra. 
she's incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, they and it's oh, go ahead. No, go please. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say, and it's not surprising that especially American audiences uh, haven't seen her in a lot of things, although she's done a lot in UK films. Um, is because I don't think that we know what to do with a woman who holds herself that way in her roles of that, like she's, she can be seductive, you know, seductive, but not in the way that we're used to. And I guess like the best um, like comparison of a role that she didn't get that, but I would have loved her in would have been Hela and Thor Ragnarok. Oh my God. Right. like that le- that type of role we yeah. don't get them enough and but that is the kind of you know yes you can't cast her as hella only because i don't know that i believe that chris hemsworth could beat her like ooh, good that's point, good point. i would probably have difficulty believe like i can kate kate's amazing in that but there is a degree to which i'm like that is still esteemed actress. Like, I I don't know. I think that Chris Hemsworth can beat her still because like she does, there's a, there's a willowiness yeah. to her. There's not a sturdiness. Yeah. There is a physical sturdiness to Rona Mitra, even as she is, you know, like long and will it's that, but there's something about, again, the way you said that she carries herself where there's nothing regal and it is, she, there's a, a sort of, if you told me that her density was heavier than most humans i'd be like yeah i believe that she is a denser human like a little black star like a little yeah i was just gonna say she is a dying star she is (laughs) yeah like like that that she just has that sort of like straight up mass where things will just bounce off of her i would believe that Mm -hmm. and it's uh yeah i i mean she's tremendous as as a a leading actor i I, watching this you said hella i was thinking tomb raider i was Uh, thinking like this oh, is how has she not been what put alternate universe am i jealous of where she got to be laura croft and we had a whole franchise built around her as laura croft i don't see why we can't still have that I, well fair fair i mean i would love to you know do that where you know like i've i've talked before on on twitter about how i'd rewrite the indiana jones of where the archaeological discoverer was actually going out to find and steal back treasure cultural mm-hmm. treasures and return them back to their people and that's the Laura Croft that I would like to see and yeah. having a Bengali uh, uh, South Asian woman from you know whose family is from Bengali uh, portray that type of character would be amazing which you know it's another like side benefit of this movie is that they're so rare that we get to see women of color in this kind of ro- role you know with again without any real like emphasis placed on her which I think is to some extent part of just like the UK's kind of you know we're all just British type of attitude which has its own problems but it does afford a lot of opportunities part of why I love watching media from there especially just the beautiful range of of amazing actors that we get to benefit from too and I'll get into the cast later because I have feelings <laughs> about what an amazing cast we have in this film. Yeah, it's I mean, it's, you know, whenever you have a movie like this, you're going to obviously have the crew, right? Like mm-hmm. if you have a group of people going to a, a zone that has been sealed off. You got to have the, the the crew who rolls out with you. And they in this it's uh, it 
it's definitely an eccentric little group. Mm-hmm. I do get a little bit of like uh the the problem I often have of just like white guys kind of blend together for me. So I have a little bit of difficulty until if you get picked off distinguishing who is who. Don't care. Still have a great time till they, you know, until then. But it is, yeah, it's a great, it's a it's a fun cast of people. It's and I mean aided by again accents, which to me like great. Give me a bunch of thick Scottish brogues. That's gonna be a good time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. I'm I'm just a movie nerd. So like I'm constantly the terrible person that's always like, oh yeah, you know him from Gotham. <laughs> he put you know, like I'm that annoying person to watch films with my so much so that my family like will text me and go, Hey, we saw that one guy in that episode of Game of Thrones. Do you know what we know him from? I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, That's I do. Yeah, you can just you pull that category that that card right out and just immediately know it. Yeah, yes. this is That's the the fun of brains, right? Right. Like you know, <laughs> I've been able to turn my my special interests into something productive to entertain other people, and that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to like, so talking about Eden a little bit more for a second. One of the things that's really interesting with this movie to me is that there's not a, and I was surprised because initially, so the opening sequence, we get Eden uh, and her like strike team going through a, a boat to try and rescue um, like people who are going to be sold off as slaves. And what we get a woman in a bathtub taking yes. a bath with then like a shotgun next to the bath. And they, the guy, one of the guys on her team busts in and she like breaks out the shotgun. And so it's just this woman, like totally naked with a shotgun. And so I was expecting this to be a movie with a tremendous amount of sexual violence. And one of the things that was surprising to me was that it's like when Eden is captured and she goes to um, Saul, the like head of what they're called the Marauders. And they're basically, you know, they're the post-apocalyptic punks. Um, I was expecting, you know, that when we see her again, she'd have been stripped naked or Mm -hmm. that we'd get like Saul groping her there. There's no real, I mean, there is a threat of sexual violence, but there's a threat of all violence and it's not specifically sexual. And I think that's a really, I really liked that. I didn't have to worry about that. I felt very safe in that environment as a result. And I think that's really nice. Like, look at how possible it is to have a post-apocalyptic world where the threat is just death and cannibalism. Like both of those are bad. Those Those are enough. Right. Yeah. No. And like, and actually we get two scenes in which a woman gets captured and tortured to some extent. And I would say that, like, I don't think that it was sexualized in the framing at all. We don't, like, while we see, like, one of them, uh, the back of her dress is torn open for torture, but Mm -hmm. we don't see any other part of her body other than her back. And like you said, like, Eden is strung up but she's not stripped to her underwear and you know and even like the type of violence that's visited on her has no real like the biting of her ear and the punching of her gut like yeah those things are again the same things that would have happened to a man in that situation and again like I think uh it is it is wonderful evidence that we can have that in film where we don't have to show that we all know that that could be a thing that happens. We don't need the film to, to tell and point to it and to make it again. That's another way that women are treated differently in films. Uh, I think for unnecessary reasons, because we all live in this world and we know that the threat of sexual violence exists, whether we're, you know, 
get caught by punk cannibals or if we're walking to our car at night so like you know we don't need that in a film and I do think that again like I think that that reflects upon um Neil Marshall's likely his history of working with women um both as a director um a writer and then also his latest project he's an executive producer on a woman-led horror movie oh wow um right like woman directed and it's all women cast and I think again it shows that he has like from by virtue of working with women and doing these projects uh like I he he is one of the few like horror filmmakers that I'm like I know that when I go in like the women in in his films are going to be treated like women or like people yeah (laughs) and that like I'm like okay so that there might be other issues uh that's fine but like I it's just such a relief sometimes to be able to like I get to just watch you know punk rock cannibals and not have to worry about seeing a woman sexually brutalized and it is sad that that is still like an issue in 2023 that even you know like that you know even as a horror fan like you would think that we've come further but no no yeah (laughs) really well yeah because it's what's I mean it's just it, it I appreciate that he recognizes that there's just not, I don't want to say bigger threats because that's not what it is, but it's specifically that like the threat of sexual violence, especially in this environment is just not the primary one. Like if you're dealing with, it's not going to be the motivating factor even for the, for the bad guys. Like, no, absolutely. And so I, I often think like, I think there's a degree to which, the presence of sexual violence in the broader, like, well, we just need to show that it's dangerous. So here's sexual violence. More than anything to me is like, well, that means you haven't fully developed your world because like this world is developed. The world building of it, the cow. Okay. We, the cow sequence (laughs) in red. I, I had to, I fully like, had was like that's a weird sequence why does that even exist and then to then later be able to connect it back was some of the best retroactive world building um mm-hmm. i was so sad so they you know are in these tanks are our, our little crews in the tanks and they're driving through scotland and they hit a cow and then they can't go any further and then they light up the field around them and there's just hundreds of cows and it's this yep. weird little and they're like well we can't go anywhere and it's sort of like funny little moment where they have to wait until what's What's black and white and spread all over is the joke. And I love like, great. Okay, cool. And then you just kind of like, that was a weird little side note. Then you later learn the reason that the cows are all over the field is because the survivors have become fully cannibals, like cannibal (laughs) by choice. And there are uh, other aspects to that. Easter egg of the cow, which I can talk to. Please. If you want to go into. I like, would here. love for you to go into that. Because like, I also was like, I, I I get it in retrospect, but also like one man does not feed the 3000 people you've assembled at your little day play. So like, let's. Yeah, go into it, please. Yeah, because there is a cultural context that might be lost on, you know, American viewers or viewers that aren't familiar with the UK history. But let me like, We've gotten into the weeds, into the the big earth. Let me backpedal. So, uh, definitely wanted to do a content warning for this. Oh yes, episode of just uh, with the current things that are happening in the world right now in October 2023. There are 
things that are seen in this film um, that might still, you know, be triggering for people. So I want to give just kind of a, a, a very like broad overview so people know what they're getting into, both as we talk about it or if they're interested in watching the film. So obviously, it you know, it contains gore, violence, uh, suicide and animal death, as we've just talked about. <laughs> and uh, but also it deals with a pandemic, uh, colonialism, government conspiracies, and then also uh, military and cop protagonists. So that might be a little trigger. There's also car chases, medieval knights, punk cannibals, warlords, and a badass woman as the protagonist. Yeah. So, um <laughs> That was, thank you. That was a real, thank you for doing that rundown. Because yeah, it is, um, I like, without getting into the politics of it, and there's a lot of different conversations mm-hmm. that could be had, it is a very, there is something very strange and unsettling to watch a movie specifically about a country sealing off a portion of their own land or the land that they have, that they are technically are their territories at this time, sealing it off and basically leaving the people to die is, is very significant at this time. Absolutely. And also significant to see a government turn its back on people who are dying of an illness. Yeah. And rather than, doing you know working to try to help them uh, with medical they just cut them off and let them die which is also a thing yeah like uh, I mentioned it earlier like whenever in in March of 2020 when the lockdowns began and everybody was kind of re-watching things like Outbreak and Contagion this was the movie that I was watching as a bizarre comfort watch but it was to me like a thing of of like i was familiar with this kind of genre before everything happened with the pandemic. And it was a a way of like, of like watching the worst case scenario. (laughs) Yeah. Like, well, at least we haven't started eating people yet. You know, like, you know, and and also like this film brings all these heavy topics with this. um, I don't know if it's specifically Scottish or UK, but, or just, you know, emblematic of neil marshall's humor that there is just so many just nothing is pointed at but there are so many jokes throughout that are jokes but they're you're also like well no actually i could see them people doing this you know in this strange you know uh cut off part of uh, a new world where you know people have been dying and the government's abandoned everyone and they don't have access to the internet and mm-hmm. they're only going off of whatever you know uh analog media that they were able to get their hands on and this is what they do and oh that's actually interesting it makes sense yeah I mean I you know I I did not prior to you know this this I didn't watch the pandemic movies at the time um because like I I try to not watch a movie I haven't seen if I know I'm going to be covering on the podcast till I'm going to cover it because then it's like well I don't want to start to think about it then anyway but um Watching now this movie three years into the pandemic and specifically watching a movie where a main driving principle is the is the evil government guy being like, well, we'll just let the people die and whoever survives is going to be fine is a real on the nose uh, description of our current pan state of how we're handling covid. So it's um, it's interesting to watch because I know that in 2020, I would have probably been like, oh, my God, that's horrifying. And now I'm like, huh, 
<laughs> so they called it in 2008. Huh? That's interesting. Wouldn't have predicted that they could have called it in 2008, but good for them, I guess. Like, ugh. Well, and I think that it's not necessarily even that he called it. Uh, he's building off of an existing genre. Yeah. And that, um, so like, let me go into the influences, which will circle back to the cow so thing. So many influences when you're on the, and the, I will say this is a list of movies I basically have not seen because this is oh. just like the post-apocalyptic genre is not one I've really ever gotten into. And I'm like very slowly now along with the, like, I never really watched action movies. And I never really watched post-apocalyptic movies as a kid. So, like, I've been watching all the action movies and, like, going into Nick Cage's back catalog and stuff like that. So most of this, this is my first understanding of it. And I can't wait to then go back and watch these movies to figure out where he pulled things from. So sorry. Go ahead now. No, no, no. Because I I really feel like this is a great starter pack of, like, understanding both, like, um, like, these genre of films, but also understanding, like, the socio-geopolitical um, things that went into influencing the creation of these films. Now, you probably have other ones. These are the main ones that occurred to me um, and that I've also seen cited by Neil Marshall himself in talking about what influence, but you can actually like do copy and paste scene for scenes from these films into Doomsday and go, oh yeah, that, that, that's the Road Warrior part. Yeah. So obviously Road Warrior, which came out in 1981, Excalibur, which also came out in 1981, uh, The Warriors that came out in 79, Aliens that came out in 86, Escape from New York, which is also an 81 film, uh, 28 Days Later, 2002, and Resident Evil, 2004. Now, definitely there's definitely an influence of the 70s and 80s in American films. Um, and I think with those if you do like, especially when we talk about like escape from New York, I think there's a lot of distance and this is the old lady and me coming out um, from a lot of films like that uh, post-apocalyptic in the, the films and media that came out during the cold war that I think a lot of people kind of just take it for what it is of like, Oh, this is all about, you know, the economic instability and and fear and you know the red scare and all that and I'm like yes but no like I there is a, a very specific um relationship to the colonialism in America that I don't think a lot of people kind of realize of like how we've internalized things that happen so like when you look at the the escape from New York is essentially it's set in a future where uh the 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 way that America solved crime was walling off the city of New York and just right <laughs> all the <laughs> criminals there and then of course I think it's the president gets uh his plane goes down over New York and, and that they send out you know, they have to send in Snake Plissken to go rescue him but like this this notion of cutting off or walling off part of the country or just banishing an urban area and considering it the haven of crime and you know whatnot it, that comes it sounds weird but it definitely comes from our existing history of having done that to marginalized people of pushing them out of spaces walling them in putting them in tournament camps putting them on reservations and that that idea is very much like a concept of colonialism of separating the 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 bad people or the unsavory elements of of a, a country or a nation or a space to make way for the 
the good people, the healthy people, the yeah. right people. Um, right. And I think there, especially when we're talking like in the seventies and the eighties, there's a lot happening in that point in America with Reagan, mm-hmm. um, with issues in the middle East <laughs> and, yeah. um, issues with oil and whatnot that were, um, pressures again, bringing up that same type of colonial mindset of like, if we just got rid of all these people that are causing issues either in our country or outside of our country and made room for good people to be fine. And that the, a lot of the anxiety that we're seeing that that is a little more nuanced than, you know, dropping the bomb, but are like, this is, you know, dystopian governments and whatnot. It was an awareness of that type of colonialism happening in America in, in, and imperialism of that, you know, people, the government literally was turning its back on dying citizens because also these movies came out in the early parts of when we started to, uh, you know, understand the AIDS crisis. Yeah. So again, like they, we knew before it was even a thing that we understood as the AIDS epidemic, we knew the government would turn its back on people that it considered a lost cause because they're gay or sick or black or indigenous or whatnot. And I think what's resonant for uh, for filmmakers in the UK for that is their own history of colonialism, which I think is fascinating when you think about this film was set, uh, the epidemic is, the epicenter is in Scotland. And mm-hmm. there's a history there of colonialism uh, that I am not <laughs> as well versed in to talk to you, but I definitely think that it resonates um, in the perspective of this film, for sure, especially specifically the use of the Roman wall. There, mm-hmm. there's, Hadrian's wall there's, in particular, yeah. Yeah, the, the, that that is for sure. Yeah, um, I mean, it's without, you know, interrogating it too much, like the thing with race, er, race and ethnicity is their constructs, right? And so, because... Mm-hmm. Um, not I'm not particularly well versed in Scotland the history of Scotland and England, but I got into it right before I went to Scotland because I was like, well, if I'm gonna go there, I should probably like know what the deal is. And so first I read Outlander because I was like, well, that's the best way in is Outlander. And then after I read that, I was like, wait, what the fuck? This is fascinating. Because as we see with the UK, there is a or with England, there is a degree to which England England's need to other and the idea of what is and is not civilized. Um, even though, like to me, if you're like, what's well, the difference between Scott Scots and the people in mm-hmm. England? I'd be like, well, they're all white folk who don't season their food. Like, what do you want from me here? And then once you realize, like, no, even within that, even within that, there was such a sense of how to break down to create exclusionary whiteness. Um, where Scots were seen as basically wild and uncontrollable. And that's why they the Romans initially had the wall because they were like, those are feral people. And yeah. then the UK or England, when they you know conquered Scotland, it was again this idea of like conquering the feral. And mm-hmm. so, and you know, all the things that they stripped from the Scots of like their tartans and their clans and all these different things to basically quote unquote civilize them are the same things that we would see them then go into other countries with um people of color where you would go well that's you know the white supremacy acting it's like no white supremacy will then turn around and eat its own if given the opportunity right well 
yeah, yeah and, like and it's famously in active uh, activist circles there yeah. is a thing of that uh colonial white colonial settlers um practiced it on their own first and that like that is absolutely it was a project that was being tested in and mm-hmm. and perfected over time and there is a lot of um, uh, anti-colonialist scholarship, both in uh, coming from Scottish people and also Irish people. And it, it is fascinating. Like you said, like you go and you look at the histories of those two countries and their interactions with the mm-hmm. UK and, um, and England's history. And you're like, wow, I'm getting some deja vu. I feel like this is, this is, oh, okay. So they practiced it here, uh, and, uh, you know, there, and then came here and did it that, oh, okay. Yeah. And so like, that is definitely us covering some of the cultural influences, but the one specific to this is, I feel like both cinema, uh-huh. the cinema fandom or cinema circles and uh, horror, especially the horror fans, uh, have an owe a debt to both the uh, mad cow disease epidemic in the UK as oh. well as the hoof and mouth disease outbreak of 2001. So now the um, oh my god the cow aspect was yes, I didn't even yes, think about that right yes <laughs> and I didn't really think about it until I, I it was actually when I was doing um a research on uh. 28 days later mm-hmm. that I was like thinking about the timing, thinking about pandemics. And cause I was like tr- looking for anyway, another thing, but um, I was like, why, why did in the early two thousands were we thinking about, you know, disease epidemics and whatnot, what was going on with us? And, um, and yeah, the mad cow. So like, so um a lot of what we see happen with the dealing of the Reaper virus, which is the fictional virus in this film, is absolutely replicating things that would have been on the television for the, the UK audience that was watching the film, including uh, implementing, uh, like, uh, let's see, a contagious cull, which was what, what they called, what they did uh, destroying. Now, this was during the... Um, a BDE, which is the mad cow disease mm-hmm. outbreak uh, that went from like the 80s to the 90s. There was a little bit still in the early 2000s, but mainly the, the big headline um, stuff was from the 80s and the 90s, where they were calling, I believe it's like 4 million. Yeah, 4 million animals that so included cows and sheep over uh so 176 people died because of that. There was military intervention. It was a huge, so you saw like mass bodies, you saw military intervention, and there was controversy around the fact that the the UK government really underplayed the issue for a long time. Oh, interesting. Right. And so then in 2001, there was a hoof and mouth disease outbreak that resulted in 6 million cows and sheep being killed. And um, it actually, the outbreak occurred in Scotland, like on the border there, but like there were there are border checks and whatnot as well. And again, a lot of issues, a lot of controversy uh, came up where uh, officials were underplaying the issue. So even more directly, it was a reflection of things that, you know, people were seeing how that was being handled and then making the next logical step of what happened if it was diseased people instead of diseased animals and understanding 
<laughs> again, I think uh, reflecting uh, an internalized knowledge of what it is to be colonized, even multiple generations detached, you still understand, you have a relationship with, especially the governing body over you of knowing that you are an acceptable loss. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the conditional aspect, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's the, Mm -hmm. um, it's, I mean, that's, that is something that I've been recently interrogating with myself with my relationship with America and like how I perceive, perceive myself as white versus like, is my white condition, my whiteness conditional, et cetera, et cetera, because I'm Jewish and all that stuff. So yeah, I think that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other right? conversation yeah. to, to get into, but like, those are all important things to interrogate. And I think that this movie, I'm using that word a lot today, but I think that this movie does like, yeah, in a lot of ways touch on those things because of the fact that, you know, the, the circumstances of it being England and Scotland in particular. And so, um, God, the mad cow disease aspect is fascinating and not a thing I had really, even though it was such a thing in the early nineties, like God, the mad right. cow disease thing was such, I mean, that was a, 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 th- a real and pressing threat. Mm-hmm. Um, to as far as all of us were concerned for like six weeks in the 90s um but yeah, yeah and even the like the atmosphere of how um it, it was characterized mm-hmm. uh because of how it was being spread by feed and you know the slaughter and all that yeah. um so much of how it was characterized was like you know contamination yeah filth and there is an underlying i think um there's a purity to that. element yeah. to how like that was something that was happening in the agricultural part of the country where you definitely could see like a cast the classist tone to like filthy you know animal the and it's threatening the urban you know yeah. the nice clean people and um I definitely think that we get uh, elements of that cultural context within the film when discussing about hemming in poor people to the point that they end up getting sick and and are piling up bodies and and again like we have like them being seen as acceptable losses mm-hmm. and to the good people survive and I, I think that that is a again like an, a thing that you will act once you like are aware of it when you start to watch um, media coming out of the UK, especially, um, you know, <laughs> from filmmakers who are, you know, or creators who are still really in touch with their cultural mm-hmm. backgrounds and the struggles of their people, um, that you will see that, like, again and again, like that, that, that paranoia that we as American creators share with um, creators in the UK of this awareness of what it means to be part of colony or colonized is again, like you said, that your existence is conditional based on how well you serve them, which I feel like Eden kind of embodies that like weariness of awareness that you're a tool of power of like, yeah, I'm really good at what I do, but God, this really sucks. Even though I've just, you know, killed a lot of people and my partner was just killed, you know, or one of my, you know, uh, uh, co-workers was just killed like yeah but like but not feeling like you're really doing anything worthwhile but you're you know you're acting and I think that that is a that is a kind of weary like loner cowboy ronin feel character that I think it's a better version of that than we've seen like with the you know rusty cowboy veteran that's burnt from the war that is essentially coded as a as a uh, confederate soldier (laughs) in Mm -hmm. this it is a different perspective of we 
you know, Eden comes from Scotland. She was almost, you know, left behind. Yeah. She has family and, and emotional ties to a place that's been cut off from the rest of the country. And while, and she's then directly working for, you know, suspected, you know, or implied to have been raised in a system to become a soldier in the machine that betrayed her own people. And that, that, that's the kind of weary warrior character I want to see more of. And a, a different version of that archetype that I think is a lot more relatable to a lot of us. And I want to see more of it. I do. Yeah. Cause I do think that that is a, that is the kind of cop military protagonist I think is a lot more worthwhile to be in media rather than somebody who is the symbol for the state, you know? Yeah. I, I find characters becoming disillusioned much less interesting to me than characters who go into it sort of disillusioned just because yeah. like I, it's an easy character arc to have someone become disillusioned. So like, that's why you often see that more, but like, there's also a degree to which as when you're watching it, you're like, okay, dude, how have you been missing it this whole time? How has this been acceptable to you until it becomes personal? Like why to, right. Well, in all fairness, it it is very tired for you and I, because we exist in a system that we have always known could just flip on a coin and take us out and decide that we're the enemy or that we're an acceptable loss. But there are a lot of creators who it are even today, just waking up to the new concept. Yeah. Right. I think they they think that they're doing something with it. Like, yeah. Yeah. I absolutely think they think like, wow, this is going to be, this is, this is really like, no one's covered it in this way before. Blow their mind. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, man, that's cool. Catch up. Right. I've been thinking the whole system shit for a while. So why are you new to this one? But um, right, and that's why I feel like narratives uh, that come from a perspective that we have of like, I'm literally working for a machine that would roll me over at any minute. That's what existing in this life is, is needed more because there are so many dudes or just so many people who I mean, that's why the whole red pill thing happens is because a dude thinks, you know, He's come across uh, an idea because he's never had to think outside of his own experience. And so he grabs the first one that seems like really good storytelling and it's usually mm-hmm. terrible and white supremacist, <laughs> but he's like, hey, but I still get to be the pr- protagonist of the story. I'm the that hero here. Great. Right? <laughs> it's not that right? the system is bad. It's that the system was fine until I was awoken to it. Now it's bad. Great. Perfect. I was never a cog in the machine. It's just that I wasn't woken up enough to be not woke, but woken up enough to be the one person who can change the system. Right. 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 And the only reason I care about it is that I wasn't given the things that I thought I was supposed to get be given. Mm -hmm. And so it's because personally I lost, therefore the system is broken. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it, I think, and you know, this is sort of jumping like parallel to this, but like the moment when they're going through, um, I I think they're in Glasgow. And yeah, yeah, it's Glasgow, right? Um, So they're there and as they're driving through the city, they're seeing numbers spray painted on the doors. And she, Eden's like, those were the numbers that told them, we were told that we should stay inside and that they would come rescue us. And so this was how many people were in the home that needed rescuing. And you're seeing like seven, five, and then there's one that says 23. And Mm -hmm. that watching, like going back for a second to the idea of like culling and uh, filth and all like the way that it was treated that mad cow disease was treated and the way that I would argue COVID was also to a large degree treated of like well in Katrina 
Oh my I god. I think that was a heavy influence. I was wondering I, I don't if... know the timing. Yeah, I was going to say like Katrina... because I mean that is a standard uh like procedure during disasters and stuff. Yeah. Um so uh I'm, I'm sorry I'm trying to bring up my thing so Katrina would have been 2006. 2006. Uh, 2005 okay. it was either 05 or 06. I'm a little iffy on that. T- I think it was 06. So yeah, no, that would, this is 2008. So absolutely right, so an been... influence. And again, mm-hmm. another example of being, yeah. you know, left. And, and that would have been media that even, you know, that was being distributed across the world of people yeah. seeing America just abandon their most vulnerable. And yeah, the numbers that on the was, doors. Yeah, that was yeah. exactly like, as I was watching, I was like that it feels very Katrina. And then it feels, it's that reminder of like, we know we know how diseases spread. We understand germ theory. We know these things. These are not difficult concepts anymore. And to then see a house that has like 23 on it and go, those people were all going to be killed. That's it. That's the end of it. Like mm-hmm. 23 people in a home are going to, they're all going to get sick because you can't, there's the density of that, of, of life there is just too, too much. And it, you know, watching it made me think of the many ways in which, I mean, this is very much getting into the what is this really about, but the many ways in which like we're set up to fail by circumstances beyond our control. Um, and that was a really good example of it, of like these people, you know, were they all living in that house at the time together or did they have to move in together once this pandemic broke out because there were no other structures in place? Like, how do you end up with 23 people in one space? All of that are failure upon failure upon failure to keep people safe and keep people healthy. And so it's, right. Or uh, did, did they die after the wall went up mm-hmm. and we're still believing that someone would come to rescue them? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all. Yeah, absolutely. They would have thought, you know, watching the, watching them seal off the wall um, and seeing the expanse of the wall. I got to say, man, um, I, I would have built a boat as soon as I f- saw that first that first wall, the first of those <laughs> those those things go up. I'd be like, no, we're fucked. They're not coming for us. We're screwed. No right. one picked up a wall like that. Like it's, you know, two feet thick and it's running the entire length of the country. And I was like, okay, well, and to be fair, the narrative cover said that, right, they, that you can't, they, that they started like they, they capped, got people in, like set off landmines and stuff, but that's. They had, yeah. Mines in the water and mm-hmm. they had boats out. And again, like, you're mm-hmm. like, yeah. So like they had the military and that like the perspective of, which is a narrative when we talk about, uh, epidemics, pandemics, disease, mm-hmm. is that is an aspect of like one of the fastest, quickest, easiest ways to dehumanize a person is to call them sick. Yeah. You know, to label them at not just sick, but also their their status as, as ill being a threat to mm-hmm. others. And, you know, again, as a veteran of the of watching uh, the AIDS epidemic in in real time, like that was absolutely the easiest way to get an entire country to turn its back on citizens that were actively dying, mm-hmm. were no real threat to anybody and had no resources, and but vilified them to the point that, you know, people would be killed even at the suggestion that they could have an illness. And, um, Again, like I think this film does such an amazing job of just like putting out that like that's the thing is like we t- I talk about this uh, when I recommend it to friends. Sometimes I'm like, this is the best made for sci-fi movie that wasn't a made for sci-fi movie. Yeah, of, like it it the the premise seems so ludicrous, but then you sit down and you watch it and you're like, 
well, actually, <laughs> I'm a little uncomfortable about how viable a lot of this is. Mm-hmm. And oh, le- lets me laugh a little bit for a second before it then makes me really face the horrors of humanity. Whew. Yeah, I mean, and and that's again, I mean the the sitting with it now in 2023 is really different, I think, than if I'd watched in 2008. Because you're like, oh, no, mm-hmm. this isn't this isn't so much dystopian fiction as it is like everything on one side of the wall is modern fiction and everything on the other side of the wall is people in cosplay. Like, this isn't... There are two very distinct yeah. white fantasies, white dude fantasies happening north very of the wall. Specific. Yes. Very specific. And we can get into that. I did want to give credit that I felt like... Um, what is interesting in uh, the beginning of the film when we first, the first time we see people who are actively sick mm-hmm. with the Reaper virus, they are doing nothing. They're literally just people standing there who are visibly sick, yeah. who get shot by uh, the military. And I think that was really interesting that that's seeded there before we get to the epidemic breaking out in London, mm-hmm. where we then get to see people who are visibly sick being violent. And it felt to me like it was a very purposeful choice to see that the violence being enacted by someone who's ill later on is not about that. This the is illness, not the rage it's virus. It's the consequences of 20- the actions. Yeah. yeah, they've been hemmed in. They've been seeing people that they love die. They are actively dying and their government is ignoring them. And that's where the origin of the violence is coming from. And I thought it was such an interesting choice to, you know, especially in a time when we had the fast moving zombies was the thing. And um, to to have the disease uh, being characterized in such a like humanized in such a way was very interesting. And I think obviously very much on purpose. Oh, yeah. I think like because initially I thought this was supposed to be like a zombie movie. And then I realized it was a pandemic movie and realizing that this was a pandemic movie and then subsequently watching like in the, you know, toward the end of the movie, the a a London has the Reaper virus has reappeared um, inexplicably. But I guess not now, like also not inexplicably. They never really figured out, a, tried to figure out a way to cure it or or deal with mm-hmm. it. They just they're like, well, it's that's a Scotland problem now. And then it pops back up again. And they're all like surprise Pikachu face 30 years later that they have to still deal with this outbreak. Yep. Um, and so in the third act, when one of the guys in London, which who's been infected in London, they've flooded a section of it and they've shut it off and left like millions of people to die with the argument that, well, they will die and who will remain will be pure. Which, <laughs> um, one <laughs> of the guys, the eugenics, later. <laughs> like, like the eugenics of this is like there is there's no subtlety to the eugenics. And I'm cool with that. You don't need subtlety in eugenics in these cases. Eugenics is well, not a place for right. Subtlety. And the, yeah. like the very purposeful of the de- the two dudes that openly talk about eugenics are two very bad white dudes. <laughs> yes, exactly. They are two. And like one of them is Malcolm McDowell. And so if you are casting a movie and you want to have a guy who like has a voice that's compelling, but is saying the most deranged shit possible. You hire Malcolm McDowell for it. There's right. no world in which Malcolm McDowell shows up. And I'm like, ah, oh, yes, the grandfatherly type. Like, right. Like, no, the voice of the uh, clockwork orange 
and also the antagonist and tank girl you know what you're getting into when you hear that voice yeah it's just you're you're gonna one way or another you're gonna end up probably in eugenics it's just what it is right um so when you know malcolm mcdowell is monologuing about it and then yes the the white like i don't know if he's head of i think he's head of like the military or something it's not really clear uh yeah if you're talking about uh 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 yeah 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 canaris yeah and i would think he's like the uh, you know again not well versed in uk politics and the structure because we know i know the mp yeah he's hatcher but uh, I'm assuming this is guy is, is essentially ahead of the military yeah. type. You he's know? like, he's the nefarious war machine guy. Like, exactly. he doesn't yeah. need a title. He just kind of is the military industrial complex personified. Like that mm-hmm. character. We always have that character. And mm-hmm. so he's the one who's like, we'll leave everyone in South London to die and then everyone will be pure. But then one man pulls off an incredible con involving fully chopping off the head and hands of a guy with security access so that he can get up and infect everybody. And it is an act of like deep defiant resistance that is so clearly motivated, not by his illness, but by the circumstances. And it's done so quickly and so efficiently. And there's no question about why he's doing what he's doing. And I really enjoyed that they didn't, um, that there wasn't like a subplot about a resistance, that there wasn't something that gave it context. It was just like, no, this is what happens when. And I, I enjoyed that that aspect of it. Um, right. I mean, like overall, the storytelling in this film is so tight. Yeah. You have to be paying attention. And that there's like tonal points that I, I do feel like it, in a different filmmaker's hands, that entire scene would have been framed as much more horrific. Yeah. But specifically getting through the scanner with the hand and then it asking for the retinal thing. Yeah. And we don't even have to see the ax fall. And that that whole framing is actually funny. It's so that, funny. Like, right? It's so funny that we're not supposed to see him as a monster. Yeah. We're seeing like it, this person who is actively dying, who has, you know, bloody, you know, resistance situation. And then we're seeing the bureaucracy of doing a hand in a retinal and in this high-tech building. And then mm-hmm. in this high-tech building, people are still dying in the streets from lack of medical care. Yeah. And that, I mean, there's a whole other cultural aspect around uh, medical care in the UK and all of that, but um, of their own issues they're having with their medical system. But I do think that, that the, those framing, that framing is really fascinating and and what it's saying, like you, like you said, like, we're not supposed to necessarily fear him. We're witnessing like just the ludicrousy, the, the, the juxtaposition of the clean technology versus the sickness of just a regular person mm-hmm. and what's happening there. And that, yeah. 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 It's a, uh, it's, it's a really like that's, it is one of the few moments where I'm like, I would also, I mean, I, I just said I don't need a whole subplot of it. I would separately, though, given the tenor and the, how quickly and efficiently that is handled in terms of the humor. It's like, this is separately like a very dark comedy that I would absolutely oh, sit and watch. Yeah. Absolutely. Like, I have notes specifically here on so many different, like, just shots yeah. that are as we're like, like, there is a point when we have a stoic bad guy in medieval garb 
looking down over our, our protagonists who have been taken prisoner and there's a gift shop sign right behind <laughs> yeah that's, that's just the level gotten, of subtlety we haven't even gotten humor. into the absurdity of the entire like the, the whole punks world that whole that everything whole right like yeah there's the cannibal punks and then there's Malcolm McDowell and his like cosplay, you know, the cosplaying medieval where he's now making everyone dress in medieval garb. Like that's the thing. Everyone take with the reveal of a, after they've escaped the, the punks and then they're running to like go find Kane, who's the doctor. And and the reveal that his main killer is in full like suit and armor. Great. Then realizing he makes, like, the courts, everybody in the court, including, like, his scholar, wear his little scholar cap with the little strings that hang down the side. That's amazing. That is deranged. Dude, right? The level of, of cosplay. Like, I call them the LARPing old white guys. <laughs> like, like absolutely. Okay, let's pull it back real quick because I think there's some really amazing, again, storytelling is so tight. So fascinating is the way that this film shifts from genre to genre, but it's also making such amazing points while it's doing it. So we have the military team is going in to Glasgow to try to, cause they, there's been satellite footage showing people alive and walking around in the streets of Glasgow. And um, so you have the full, and this is absolutely the whole thing out of aliens where you have the full, you know, uh, weapons up military, group team go in with their armored cars and they just get their fucking asses handed to them in record time by what is essentially a bunch of like street kids mm -hmm. punks who with like nails hammered through their bats and you know improvised weapons and um and what I love about it is like the grill, like the different types of warfare we're seeing. We're seeing a, a very professional, very well-financed military going into uh, up against a guerrilla uh, army, essentially, of kids who, from what I can tell from most of them, based on the timeline we're given, most of these kids were born after the wall went up. Yeah. Yeah. Or I that mean, they, they, were they, all seem, they all seem to be in their, I mean... At 38, I can tell you, I personally would not have the energy or the stamina <laughs> to hang out with these people. Like the cannibalism is a lot. The cannibal, like the 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 stage play that you have to put on before you eat is too much. Like they got to be in their 20s because I'm not doing. Like I'm not going to Coachella at 38, and I'm certainly not joining this band at 38. Right. I mean, it definitely feels like you know. I mean, it is a very distinct age group separation happening there and i think it definitely is on purpose of like of a youthful movement that is nihilistic and just believes that you know uh that like they're okay so like uh at one point there is a chase where protagonists are being chased down by a bus being driven by the uh the punk cannibals and on the bus it is written people have always eaten people so like and so when uh they have you know when Saul who's the warlord in Glasgow has his big you know uh meeting or whatnot before they uh have their feast <laughs> I just love it the pole dancers oh my god they're the the, the guys on the guys on ropes swinging over the the stage <laughs> 
the stagecraft involved. I wanted the I wanted an entire thing about the rehearsals that they right? that these cannibals would put on together. The, like this, this is the, this was their rave, which was the political, you know, stage, literal political stage on mm-hmm. which Saul is doing his thing. The the kilted dancers in line dancing in the back um, and the fact that they play Good Thing by Fine Young Cannibals. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, it's not. I didn't think to look up who made that song. Oh my god, that's incredible! I knew that. I was like, they did not. <laughs> that's incredible. Yes, and again, like so, like I do think, like you look at these things, um, especially that song made me think about like what would these like what are the influences that put together this society? Mm-hmm. And so, especially if we're assuming, it doesn't say it in the text, but. I'm assuming that there was also like a information cutoff. Yeah. We don't really see any TVs. We don't see any radio. So like, and the fact that that's that Kane taught these kids that there was nothing beyond the wall, that the whole world was gone. And so these kids are operating the idea that they're living in a post-apocalyptic world. And so everything that they have to construct this culture they have is based on analog media that would have been left behind in the city and so music like the fine young cannibals um seeing the influence of like mad max and whatnot i'm like this make it and definitely uh you know punk culture of like the 70s and 80s right right? like and i don't like i think that that is an aspect of like post-apocalyptic like world building that we don't get as much care in that I thought was really interesting of like, yeah, no, what, what you know, like based regionally on like what kind of stuff would people be able to kids be able to read or yeah. consume to have a perspective on the world that um, lends to this notion of that we, you know, <laughs> we kill them, we cook them and we eat them. Right. <laughs> Especially in a in a region where, as we've seen, there's an abundance of animals that they could be eating instead. So many. The, so when many. I was in, when I was in Scotland, I was doing this like walking path, which like there's one that you can actually walk the length of England along Hadrian's Wall. I did a different one, and one of the things that I was like to make sure I drank enough water because I'm not great at self regulating was anytime I saw or thought of a sheep, I had to take a drink of water. And I was so hydrated on that walk because there's nothing but sheep. And if you're not seeing a sheep, you're thinking, God, it's been a while since I've seen a sheep. And then you have to drink some water. There's nothing but sheep in Scotland. There's so fucking many. A thing that I tell uh, my fellow American friends of like when I went to the UK for the first time that I never had a concept of like to me, I had always had this idea that the reason colonialism happened was because they ran out of space and so they needed more and then you go there and you're like there's so much farmland there's so much just open green space that and and it you know clicked with me I'm like oh yeah because some rich motherfucker owns all this land and wouldn't let anybody farm it and that's why, like, that's part of the colonialism of how it works is then more, you know, then dudes go to a new land, they own a bunch of land and, you know, and 
they sell this idea of, well, once you're the landlord, then you can live this dream of being free. But, you know, that is perpetuated on the idea that you still have to kill and clear off people that live on the land. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so like it was, it, it, it is adds a layer to this idea that, that these people turned to cannibalism and that it is not opposed to like a lot of stories that talk about this. It is not necessarily a product of human nature. It is a product of consumer capitalist colonialism that believes that, I mean, that's the thing to me. I look at it and I go, well, you know, technically we're eating people all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, yeah. It's like you feed people into the machine and they die in order for the system to continue then that is a form of cap of ca- uh, cannibalism i mean you know hosier eat your young yeah <laughs> yeah it's not like i mean it's it, it's a little bit of the the what is this really about of life for sure is that like ultimately we are all deep down yeah i think that's not an insane thing to like th- being able to consume something is almost uh, in the way that, are stru- that everything is structured now is almost always predicated on somebody else suffering as a result which is like why people say there's no ethical consumption under capitalism like that's what right. it is well, and because our whole construct like i said of like this idea of selling someone on well your dream of success is do you become the landlord right is that idea of like our whole concept is about uh that the only way we can be free is by dominating somebody else or becoming the person in power rather than like learning to work in community. And I think that that's, it's a really uh, very pointed choice to make the leader of these cannibal punks, Kane's son. I was about to showing, say, yeah. Right? That like, he, that like he's going to set off and be totally different than his dad. And it's like, no, you just made your own. You just didn't like how your dad made you dress. You just wanted to be shirtless and have stripper poles like that. But it's the same system, man. We're, and that the whole thing's predicated on a disagreement. Yeah. That's it. Like that he's like, no, the world exists beyond the wall. I'm not going to actually do anything. I'm not going to get anybody across that wall. I'm not going to see if I can get medicines or technology to help my people. No, no, no. I'm going to just be mad that my dad lied to me. And then which, I'm going to make it everybody else's problem. What a believable part a of the mass shooter energy. <laughs> <laughs> such a believable thing for this character too like what a real thing that yeah yeah i feel like 90 percent of the world's problems stem partly at least from i'm mad at my dad so i'm gonna make it your problem now yeah yeah no absolutely right yeah and and again you know that whole like i don't know how to how to be compassionate to my child self and i don't know how to function as a healthy uh, father figure for my my son so like I have to die and then they have to become the terrible version, uh, you know, another terrible version of me and just, you know, replicate, you know, the terrible uh, shit that I did. And that, and that, absolutely. So you have Saul who is in the city cosplaying Mad Max <laughs> and Road Warrior uh, cannibalism with all of his young, in, you know, impressionable friends who have like so many by the way there's so, so many, many of them so many of them i do feel like you know there's definitely limitations on budget for crowd shots but i like to believe that there are other people living around the city doing things and staying in hiding because 
obviously that gang needs to be eating somebody. So there's That's probably the like, more there's people out there, right? definitely more people out there. there because, and there's a lot of that gang to feed. So they got to be eating somebody. Because like that one guy is not, that one guy from Eden's team was not sufficient to serve no, the whole absolutely. crowd. That's like barely like two roasts going yeah. on there. Like, um, also, huge shout out to the practical effects in this thing. Oh. Like, like, just... I like I still have and I have seen I'm a horror fan I have seen some horrific things in film but the choice to actually use meat to show the after I'm like yes and to some extent like making a very big point on what's going on there that we're just meat and that's how you dehumanize someone you reduce them to just being a body and that that's what these kids learned Oh, so gross. There's so so many moments in this movie that are just like, this movie does really enjoy um, popping people's heads, essentially. Oh, dude. Like, this is a movie that that relishes the gore, um, which is a lot. There's so much. Yeah. So much. But never, like, like, excessive. Like, it never feel like it's Tarantino excessive. It's just mm -hmm. like, okay, okay, we're just going to roll over that guy in a tank. All right. Right. And very effective. Like, again, like, I think really great editing. um, And very like, we're we're seeing a dude in, you know, fairly believable, crispy makeup. And then we get a shot of something that's implying that he's being eaten. And but no actual like, you know, uh, you know, overarching gore effects. Again, I think, you know, by a virtue of being very smart with practical effects. And, you know, like a lot of projectile objects going into heads that are covered in helmets so we just see a little blood mm-hmm. and but but you're still like good visceral yeah it's yeah visceral. absolutely yeah. oh i did want to point out too that what like the production design on this film is like these are the type of films that should be winning oscars on the fact that we have the dude that's operating the crane for the cannibalism feast has a black chef's hat. Like, where the fuck do you find that in a post-apocalyptic god glow? And that on in welding on the crane, there is a sign next to the winch marking rare, medium, and crispy based <laughs> on where you crank the winch to. Which I'm again, like I'm like, you know, yeah. there was somebody was like, we gotta put this on the crane. Yo. It's it's fantastic. Like every every sign that the can the cannibals have so many signs. There's so signs on signs. the buses that they have. There's signs so on incredibly everything. literate for punk They're so kids. literate, they, and they love a pun. They love a joke. Like they're having the one. Like if you're gonna have a post apocalyptic cannibal world, you do want them to have a good time at it. And Absolutely. like that's having just watched uh, this. Having just watched Waterworld not too long ago. Like Saul very much. Um, is taking his cues directly from uh, the bad guy in Waterworld. Like, that's just no question. He doesn't have the Southern accent, but he's got a lot of other vibes to it, including, like, the sense of humor and the showmanship. He is up on that stage, slapping asses, dancing, having the best time for, like, a good five minutes of coordinated stage play where they Mm -hmm. must have had rehearsals. Oh, no, absolutely. Well, and obviously, you know, like, he he learned this this theatrical charisma yeah charismatic leadership from his dad he from just his dad, who a different also brand has of it. yeah also because we see with the dad like they also do 
you know, have have these sorts of like glad gladiator style dispent, like killing of people. Like you get this vibe that no matter what, there's going to be this kind of very specific violence. And it's just a question of whether it's being done in like old timey castles or if it's being done in a post apocalyptic warehouse, like the same vibe, though. Right. Totally same vibe. Love it. Yeah. Um. I gotta so, say, yeah. though, we've gotten through most of this without ever once, and this is weirdly enough the third movie in a row now, um, where we are talking about a character who has a disability and particularly has a prosthetic, a prosthesis of some sort. And yes. this is now the third movie in a row that I'm doing this with, which is a weird coincidence, but also like, fuck you. Like, I granted, I'm not entirely sure that the way that she uses her eye is maybe the most um, safe for her own well-being like it rolls on the floor and then she pops it right back in her head and i'm not yeah. sure that's how definitely not sanitary not what sure. i would choose to do but um i do i do love that one it's like this reoccurring thing and and i think of so i've watched recently um piranha 3 double d which has uh ving rames has a prosthesis has a prosthetic leg that is also a shotgun a uh, skyscraper where Vin, um, <laughs> yes, where the rock has a prosthetic titanium leg that sometimes just like becomes a combat tool. And now this, and I, I am not a disability activist. I am not one who can speak to it. I will say this is definitely probably the best use of prosthesis in terms of like the most, uh, grounded, but I do really enjoy this like tactical prosthesis trend, not because it's like, Otherwise, a prosthesis otherwise wouldn't be useful, but I just love, I love surprise gadgetry. Absolutely. And I think like, I think there is an argument to be made that it is making, or it could be seen as making a statement about the states intertwining in Mm -hmm. disability. Like the fact that again, like she obviously necessarily, like the eye is a product that is being used for the service of the state yes. is the way that she records stuff. So caused she obviously by... got that from the state. Yeah. Yes. And caused by damage created by the it's state. By the state. Yes. Right. And that the only way that a disabled person is useful to the state is as a weapon of the state and also as an extension of the state's ability to record what's happening. And the fact that she then turns that as a weapon against the state at the Mm -hmm. end is wonderful so I like I again I'm not a disability activist but I would say that like looking at that I think it is definitely hinting at a deeper thought process around disability like how a disabled person would operate opposed to just making the character like you know a stereotype of the one-eyed soldier you then take it and think about like what does that mean how like how she wouldn't necessarily be considered a good soldier if she didn't have two eyes so the state enables that but only in so much that it remains useful to them absolutely i i all of those things because yeah the the way that the eye that her that her recording eye gets used in the end is great because like the the culmination is essentially her recognizing that she's not going to be able to do enact any sort of change and like she knows not to trust um Karnas, whatever his name is the, the bad guy she knows yeah. not to trust him but she has to hand over the girl whose blood is theoretically going to give us a cure but she finds but she's able to undermine the state using the very thing that the state caused harm upon her in the first place and i like i i feel like i do feel like to a degree you and i i don't know if how we, all of the things we have talked about are my what is this real movie really about in the sense that like 
I do think to a large degree, this movie is about how, you know, the state um, state violence and then the way that it can be used to the benefit of the state, but then can be used against like all these different components are really I I think it's interesting. And I, I think that the movie intentionally or not creates a really compelling argument on a lot of these things. No, absolutely. And I, I do think that there's there is there's so again like I said the storytelling is so tight that you have to like really be paying attention to catch pick up all these pieces yeah um, even just for the straight bare bones plot that I can't not see these as choices yeah and very specific choices and and also I can't I you know as as somebody with deep-seated dad humor I cannot resist saying that is one way to have a body camera anyway uh, <laughs> but like but yeah no I think that that there is uh, again like the influence the film influence especially like escape from New York and stuff um speak to what this film is, is in my mind which is much uh a, that is uh uh I had a I had written it out in a very like articulate way and of course I can't find it but essentially um anti-government paranoia genre yeah. um which can span a bunch of different you know from sci-fi to you know uh fantasy horror whatnot but I, there is there's a particular type that i think a lot of media gets mistaken for being military like dramas or military or police dramas or procedural dramas but we have to look a little bit deeper because like this on its face could be just as you know easily exchangeable with any other type of military genre but um i thought it was very so like i said like we we see the military go into glasgow and get their asses handed to them which is absolutely taking a cue from aliens where the military go in and get their asses handed to them in a situation that they're not at all prepared for and by contrast then we have this literally essentially just two yeah two military people and one scientist with the two refugees uh that get captured by Kane's medieval LARPer cosplay white supremacists (laughs) and we see these guys that are cosplaying as their fantasy of what medieval times was Mm -hmm. and obviously I mean like it there's all these clues around them that you're not sure if like that skull in that cage is a decoration or an actual person that got put in a cage and like they're using torture implements but when they actually get in hand-to-hand combat with military trained folks they get their ass asses handed to them yeah and because like right like you put on the like and let's this is where we get into my hyperfixation about <laughs> military warfare and fighting and weaponry and whatnot. The fact that these dudes who think that they know so much about like power and whatnot put a man who had to be at least a head taller than her, yep. in full armor, which on a good day is a hundred pounds on yep. him in a combat terrain that is rocky and uneven. And then she's allowed to be in her like comfortable form-fitting sports bra and yoga pants outfit with her shoes with, you know, that weigh nothing. And she, we see how actually uneven that fight is because she's so uh, free to move around when this guy's just lumbering around. And you can tell that like the only reason that they 
exist in a position of power is because they've been taking advantage of people who don't have any military training, don't have an ability to fight back. Yeah. Well, it reminded me of, um, did you see the video of the white supremacist who just gets his ass handed to him in an MMA fight with a Jewish guy? No, but that <gasps> sounds glorious. Yeah, it's like some guy, it's, I mean, you know, I don't know, I, I, he, some guy who runs a gym or some sort of a, a hand-to-hand combat, like an MMA gym, and some dude, white supremacist, was talking a big game online. He was like, come fight me. And he just gets his ass handed to him. And I mean, is tapping out and the guy's like, I'm not like I granted, I know this is not necessarily like what you're supposed to do when you're fighting. But the, the Jewish guy's like, mm, are you tapping out? I can't tell. You really got to make it clear that you're tapping out. Um, and, it, you know, it reminds me of like that, essentially, which is that most of the time white supremacy can only triumph if you're surrounded by other people who are just as mediocre as you are. That's exactly that's, the point. That's and that, the that, that's the point I see when it comes to Kane and his whole group. Yeah. Is that like these guys, they only they only exist in these positions of power because they have an uneven power dynamic with all the other people who exist under them. And uh-huh. that they're using it that way. Exactly. And that the and so it is even more amazing for all of the eugenics bullshit that comes out of his mouth, like we're the superior species because we survived and we're immune. And it's like, no, no. <laughs> like, I'm pretty like, you just had a dude a foot taller than this woman, heavily armored and with a weapon. And she kicked his ass. I mean, she did have to work at it, but she kicked his ass. Yeah. And like that, the, you know, and that that is a choice to put those words in that character's mouth and then to very purposely undermine everything that he bl- has set his beliefs upon very quickly by an incredibly competent woman. And that is fantastic. And yeah. I definitely, again, I think it's totally on purpose and that there's that, that that is like a beautiful, you know, response to white supremacist rhetoric is to be like, actually, mm-hmm. Right. Like if you didn't have all these pieces of technology that you've been holding over other people, you would just be, you know, you would just get your ass kicked. Absolutely. Not that superior. Yeah. And that, that like you can see and circle back around. This is, again, why uh, like where I talk about like, you know, where we're without the benefit of, of other perspectives, you know, sad little white dudes like Saul who finds out that he's been lied to his whole life by his dad mm-hmm. will pick the narrative that suits him the best rather than one that helps everyone else. So what does he do? Does he help overthrow his father? Does he try to help people that are being oppressed by his dad? No, he goes off to the city and creates his own little gang of, of you know, cannibal punks you know, mm-hmm. or his own, you know, group of incels to make him feel better about himself where he's supreme because of the violence he enacts. Exactly. Right. Again, like we said, like a sad little white boy that makes his issues with his dad, everybody else's problem. So we have, we have, uh, so we have uh, Callie who is Kane's daughter who ran away from him and to find Saul, her brother, and then ends up getting imprisoned. And that's where Eden finds her imprisoned. And I think that like Callie and Saul are like a good example of just like the the aimless or kind of like the 
the way that uh, white supremacy and toxic masculinity really just, uh, I don't know the right way to do say it, but like uh, the, how they harm children yeah. brought up, like, cause they're neither one of them are really uh, enabled to be like functional human beings or adults on their own. They're raised under a regime that tells them, you know, what they're going to do and when exactly. they're going to do it and obviously lies to them. And Saul's reaction to that is, well, I'm just going to go start my own regime where I don't care about anything and everybody's going to follow me. And, and Callie's just like, I, I just wants to run away from it all. Yeah, Callie just wants to not be involved in any of this, um, right? which, you know, is very much a, in a daughter scenario there when the when the son is having some sort of like major um like almost biblical issues with his dad the mm -hmm. daughter is like can i can i just check out of this entirely and i found that very relatable no absolutely like because yeah. it does make sense that like her once getting free of her dad in a world that she doesn't understand or know she's gonna go try to find the nearest male authority figure <laughs> yeah i mean finds out he's just as trash as her dad and then it's kind of like, uh, um, not not at all a criticism of her. I just, you know, I think it's uh, it helps us understand why uh, the other people in this world, uh, you know, have decided between one of these two incredibly broken men to lead them. And um, and also, I think it's another interesting reflection about um, the thought that goes into world building in this mm -hmm. pseudo post-apocalypse world of like, an actual thought process of like how would people take what information and ideas that they have access to and what kind of world would they build and it is interesting because I hate the whole like trope of like it's most common like in Terminator of like you as human species are just meant to destroy yourselves which is like that's not what humans are that's capitalism <laughs> yeah um, and so like this, I felt like this was such a great, uh, like we could actually see the actual grafting, like literally Buddy took feudalism as, you know, or cosplaying feudalism for his LARPer old men, medieval, you know, regime. And then uh, his son went the opposite way of like a, you know, uh, a edgelord's version of of chaos and anarchy as his version of but again they're both like very distinctly um products of the the society that existed before the same society that abandoned them right and right so it is really interesting to like contrast them against um Canaris, who's the you know the bad yeah the guy henchman. evil bad guy on the on the other side of the wall Right. And, and the, the prime minister and like that, these are guys that like none of their conversations have to do with what's good for the actual people on the ground. It's all about how they maintain power and, and, uh, and eliminate any threats to their power. And that's all the conversations happening with the, with the men in positions of power in in the story. Yeah. On, on every level it's, you're right. right? That's yeah. Yeah. Cause this isn't like, you know, sometimes um, there's kind of these different modes of disaster movies. And like one is, you know, survive the disaster. And one is how do we solve the disaster? 
And in this case, it's kind of, I mean, it's interesting because pretty much on both ends, the how do we survive the disaster has been a very insular way of doing it, which most of the time, like, it's either how does all of humanity solve the disaster or it's how does this one specific family solve the or survive the disaster. In this case, it's like, how do we use in for everybody at every level except for Eden? It's been how do we use the disaster to our advantage to bring about a society that's better for us, which is, you know, maybe the truest version of a disaster movie. Right. And for some people, the the best for us is how do I maintain power? Yeah. You know, and yeah. um, I do think like, like, I do love how ambiguous uh, Eden's choices are at the end of it. You're not really sure necessarily what she's doing, um, like, other than, you know, being a badass. Right. <laughs> and throwing around decapitated heads. But um, there's no necessary like that she would necessarily end up being like the other leaders. Yeah. And like. You know, um, I like the ambiguity that like we could all decide, you know, that she could take it in a different turn. Um, yeah, because like, yeah. yeah, like like you said, with like disaster movies, it's always interesting for me to like it, for me disaster movies, much like horror movies, because so much of the genre is aimed at a very like middle class white anxiety that. Uh, that seems like not to be uh that asshole but <laughs> seems to be like I'm like oh is that all you're worried about <laughs> okay <laughs> oh people are trying to kill you <laughs> oh you don't know how to find food you might go a couple of days without water <laughs> you know? like you know I mean yeah. like yes obviously that's a bad thing but also you know I, I look at it and I'm like or you know yeah oh no the man that you are married to might kill you <laughs> that's so shocking yeah <laughs> um for me I look at them and I think a lot about it's always interesting to me to see how often these narratives leave out uh existing communities in our life in mm -hmm. real life that already have like community infrastructures in place to handle situations like that yeah um in fact like just yesterday I was re-watching one of my favorite b-movies uh I mean it was not a b-movie but anyways vampire movie um uh 30 days of night yeah uh, and which is set in in an Alaskan town and I won't go into it, but like it is definitely obviously written like it's based on a comic that I really like too but that's written by white guys mm -hmm. and the movie is obviously it's sent you know centrally focused on white guys even though it's set in Alaska with <laughs> a large majority majority of uh Native Alaskans or Alaskan Natives sorry and um and someone who's lived in Alaska like I there is a an element of comedy to the movie to me because the whole concept is that you know vampires figure out that there's a whole month where oh, yeah. there's no sunlight and oh so they go yeah. and they they terrorize and take over this town and really honestly the movie is more about you know post 9-11 fears of terrorism and and all that but like I watch it and I'm just like <laughs> like, like like because I'm like you know that very obviously there's no presentation of 
indigenous culture in the narrative to talk about like these people didn't have phones and yeah. they survived up there. Like a lot of people up, you know, in rural areas of, you know, out in the Alaska bush don't have a lot of the things that would make a very like comfortable person living in, you know, the lower 48 be like, oh my God, what would I do if I was lost in the woods and I didn't have these things? Well, if you live in the woods, it wouldn't really be that scary. Right. <laughs> right. Like, so that is a thing that the aspect of a lot of disaster movies that I, you know, I feel like so much of it is about the the terror of being of losing um, the comforts that we take for granted without any real comprehension of that there could be a world and an existence that and a, a form of community and community leadership that would exist outside of the same. Yeah broken system that we live in now because you know again like within all of the three examples of governance that we see in the movie none of them are community based yeah. all of them are you know they're all hierarchical you know, right yeah in yeah. a small group of people controlling a large group of people and it basically dehumanizing them through the process and what does that say I then definitely think you know obviously this movie is not like a great <laughs> yeah. academic study of governments but I do think that it reflects like how we're able to look at, at a film like this and and get invested in it because it replicates things that we feel is true to what what's in our life and oh this is actually how it would work out and as we've seen there's so many things about this movie that we're like oh yeah that's exactly how it went or, yeah. you know, Oh, I could believe it having gone even further. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, it's definitely like, it, I think you're totally right about the idea that, you know, obviously like with the, with most disaster movies, they are kind of like limited in scope in terms of it's not necessarily like, sometimes it's not necessarily the, you know, the idea that we're losing any way of existence, but just we're losing our current way of existence and that that's the threat. Um, but like, no, plenty of people survive without those sorts of luxuries and those sorts of things that we, you know, modern conveniences, uh, at, so to speak, like, and they're perfectly happy without it because not everything that we have in our current life is necessary to be a happy, live a happy, full, fulfilling life. God knows without social media, we'd probably all lead happier, more fulfilling lives. Uh <laughs> <laughs> right. well you know as somebody who it, you know is old and existed before that you know we were just terrible people in person right oh yeah <laughs> right oh, you no know. awful separate you could listen i'm not saying we'd be better people i just saying we might like <laughs> be slightly more functional in a different way and right. I know I recognize that like the benefits of social, uh, obviously social media has many benefits and I have significantly benefited from it. And without it, like all of the insane things in my head would just bounce around the inside of my head for hours on end instead of being put the internet and no longer being at, like my problem and becoming everyone else's problem. Amen. That's but, me. <laughs> I, right. Right. So no, I'm like, I'm oh. like, I can actually just talk about these things that, you know, I don't have to like, overshare them in awkward conversations at the bar with people yeah. who are like oh yeah I liked that movie I didn't need you to talk for two hours about the socioeconomic impacts of that, that movie but that's great exactly <laughs> oh, no, I that's... can find people who actually care about that 
Sometimes I'm like, why is everyone in my Twitter or now my blue sky thread like feed? Why is everybody like it's everyone's neurodivergent in my blue sky thread? And I'm like, right, because we're like social media is just it's like daycare for all of us. That's why. Well, yeah. And it like eliminates (laughs) all of the social rituals that we usually have to suffer through before we can find people who actually want to have conversations that we want to have. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like, I I think, I think the thing about like my, my perspective on social media is I can't wait till we have social media that isn't dependent on capitalism. Right. Where you can just like use it and not have to worry about whether or not there's, right. Yeah. Like it's, it. Uh, I mean, it really, I wish we would get back to the idea of looking at the internet, like a utility yeah. and then looking at social media, like an, a, you know, a utility infrastructure, especially like we recognize now what Twitter was doing for us for things of just like knowing when schools were being, you know, let out early and yeah. and being able to cover, you know, news stories on the ground. Um, and like, I, I, w- I, you know, I wish for us to get to that place that we understand that it's something that we all agree should exist and should exist in a functional way so that we can all yeah. create a space where we don't have to, it's not driven by, economics of attention and engagement and more about just being a tool that we use to engage with each other again so that all of us neurodivergent people that don't really want to leave our house but still want to talk to people (laughs) exactly so that we can just yeah we we can just have have our own little special pod of friends to yell with Exactly. exactly exactly yeah so do you think this brings us to what was this movie really about? We've definitely like, I almost kind of feel like we've done the entire episode has been us talking about what this movie was really about, but do yeah, you have like, I mean, something, a thesis, a central thesis you want to kind of sum it up with where you. Um, well, yeah, cause I think it covers so many things. Um, but I think like overall, like the way that I approach the movie is that that it that in some ways the spirit of the film is no shit is really fucked up but we can still kind of have fun while we talk about it Mm -hmm. and that's how it feels to watch the movie is you're like ooh, and then you're like they ran over a cow (laughs) you know like like, yeah like like my uh, the the best example to me in my mind whenever I think about like how I'm going to describe this movie to somebody who you know to give them a a set of expectations going in and I'm like I don't know how to verbally explain the sequence in which the super turbocharged uh self uh, uh driven defense system on the wall blows up a cute fluffy bunny and where we <laughs> see a bunny that's a real bunny but when it blows up it looks like special effects from the uh, Monty Python's Holy Grail yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, like a little stuffed bunny and blood sweater and that the, there is like that is shot in such a way that I'm like I can't imagine that they didn't want me to laugh at that moment and <laughs> and yeah yet at the same time as seeing like a litter terror of the state being enacted and yet at the same time it's like (laughs) the bunny blew up and um also you know trigger warning death of animals but you know at the same time it's getting like it has and that 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 type of humor seated where it's not it's not going oh my god look how clever we are which is one of the aspects of a lot of like self-aware b movies nowadays and i hate it and i don't find that funny at all and 
it usually is just trying to disguise being a bigot and for jokes like ironic um mm-hmm. but here it's just there like they just lay it there and then go about their business and if you happen to you know pick up on the fact that during the car chase one of the uh cannibal punks is driving a plumbing truck that literally says on the side that your shit is our bread and butter <laughs> then you just get that little giggle to yourself during the you know the chase scene and just all those little seeded bits of you know even like during the fight some of the actors very much act in like some you know kind of goofy ways that people who aren't prepared for that kind of violence would act Mm -hmm. and it gives you kind of just a little uh release valve and so I think yeah again like there is a an aspect I think of this type of filmmaking that I could see like other filmmakers do where uh in these genres that don't have the pressure of being prestige that allow them to be to speak a lot of more truth in a way that we, we aren't like weighed down by it we can kind of laugh but also like be like yeah no that's fucked yeah yeah i mean it's i haven't seen starship troopers but i would assume that there's like not uh, like that the, not that there's this but that there's like a little bit of a rhyme to it with this of like there are the moments where you go oh this is this was something you did partly because you think it's like if someone's paying attention they're gonna have a good time with it like that's yes yes yeah if someone's looking for it they're gonna get the laugh exactly and I feel like that that that's a way to like um there's a talent in that like um you know everybody gets like oh you know if you don't get the satire you're just not smart enough and I'm like no I think that there are um satire that like is specifically made for a, from a certain perspective and sensibility and it's okay like if you don't get that that's totally cool that's fine it's not saying that you I mean like all of the the you know the the subtle references to the mad cow disease epidemic and the hoof and mouth uh epidemic obviously a lot of people who live outside of the UK may not get those references and get that understanding and that undertone but that doesn't make the movie any less enjoyable yeah and you know so and yeah i really can't wait to hear if you ever do watch starship troopers what you think of it because it is yeah (laughs) i i need to i need to watch it. it's one of those ones that's like oh i know this is a gap in my film knowledge and like i know i'm probably once i watch it gonna really like it but when it initially came out, I was like, absolutely not aliens. Also, the aliens are arthropods, and I do not like those legs. I'm not fucking with that. Um, <laughs> because, like, I, my issue with spiders and stuff, I don't, I'm not creeped out by spiders, but if I think too long about their leg joints, I get really grossed out. Um, like, otherwise, I'm pretty much fine with spiders, but their legs, I have issues with the legs. No, I totally understand. Like, I have very few issues with most insects, but millipedes and centipedes, I'm like, nope it's too many legs yeah and also millipedes i don't know if it's particular to one uh subspecies of them will actually burn you like a chemical burn if you break their skin like so even hurting them hurts you and i'm just like that is a devil bug (laughs) that's that's cool but also yet another reason why i'm just not gonna fuck with arthropods or or any of those like I was just last night I was watching um, Life on Our Planet, which is the new I think it's on Netflix. Uh, yeah, it's on Netflix. It's like the new, you know, sort of CGI yeah. history of the Earth thing. 
And they were talking, it was, we were doing the Cambrian explosion, which is all just like water invertebrates. And I was like, man, I did not realize until I was actually thinking about it, how much I love marine invertebrates. Like I know a surprising amount of fun facts about them for somebody who has zero interest in most biology stuff. Um, But then I was like, but the minute they get out of water, I want nothing to fucking do with any invertebrate on land. Nothing. There's like, I can't explain. And someone was like, what about snails? And I was like, get them the fuck back in the water. Like, I don't know. I don't know what it is, but like, I'm cool with them if they're in the ocean. And I think they're fascinating in the ocean and on land. I'm like, those are devil creatures. I want nothing to do with any of them. <laughs> um, but so, yeah. No, I, 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 I get yeah. it. Like, no. well, and the ocean provides such a wonderful cushion. Like we don't right. necessarily, humans don't necessarily belong in the ocean, so like they have their place we have yeah. ours don't cross over the I streams just, yeah and also like there's just no land animal that does anything as cool as penis fencing which sea slugs do and i'm like cool i'm in it's called penis fencing how can i not be in on inverts in marine invertebrates with that like come on true no absolutely i was just watching something that was talking about um a barnacle a certain species of barnacle that um Practices with I believe it's called parasitic castration. Hell yeah! It's actually like its whole thing is that it uh usually attaches to a female crab and convinces through like hormones and whatnot convinces it that it's her eggs and so Uh she feeds it and it will even distribute its eggs and if it attaches to a male crab it will actually send hormones to convince the male crab that it's a female. crab and we'll take care of right oh right? my god it transes the crab it that's amazing crab. oh it's a gender affirming barnacle yeah i, I love yeah it's lovely who knew that that you know crabs had access to gender affirming surgery <laughs> i i love parasitic shit like that right it's nice i'm glad for the crabs that's that's fast like i See, this is what I'm saying. Marine invertebrates, weird, cool shit. Whereas, like, you get it into a hornet on land, like a parasitic wasp in, on land. I'm like, nope, want nothing to do with that shit at all. <laughs> Definitely. See, and I love the fact that, like, that, you know, I mean, overall, Mother Nature does not give a crap about our social constructs yeah. of gender and sexuality and whatnot. It's very affirming for me. But also I love how like once you get rid of uh most of the uh limitations of gravity and air and you're inside the ocean every rule is off oh, and yeah. everything is like you know like um oh my gosh what is it the the light fish not lantern fish but uh, oh the um lure. yeah the um, uh oh god it's um angler fish thank you yes <laughs> Comes like a, attached to a female and just that's that in the little... he just lives his life attached to her, <laughs> fertilizing her eggs for the rest of his life. And I'm like, you know, uh, <laughs> hey, yeah, nature. The, little, the little dinky man, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, I I love that, but I do understand that like it can get creepy when it comes outside of the. Yeah. I just, I can't, it's something, but yeah. So, so going back, the point being of, of, of the legs. So going, retracing our steps. I always like the, 
I, I, I call it like in whenever I'm trying to figure out where I got, how I got to a point, because like inevitably I'll be in the shower and be like, how the fuck did I end up here with this thought process? And then I like monkey bars my way back. So monkey barsing our way back through marine invertebrates to arthropods to millipedes to starship troopers <laughs> going back to the satire in this movie. <laughs> right. And the delicate balance of humor horrific yeah uh, over the top violence and then you know and a a hyperbolic supposedly yeah <laughs> um a situation into something that can both be you know uh can be viscerally harrowing to watch but also be humorous and entertaining all at the same time i think it, it follows much of the same recipe that you see george miller with the um mad max franchise of the things that he does with his story where we can both be like really thoughtful about how people function and how humanity survives horrible things while also having you know a giggle at you know bdsm post-apocalypse punks which you have a little bit of that in here too don't we oh for sure yeah there's there's like a guy in a full zipper suit like who just is yeah. yeah There's like a, a a man animal that just kind of is led around on a leash. And that's, you know, I like that they threw that in just because it was that little moment of like, why not? Right. Because, yeah. You know, like, like, like the fact that the handcuffs that she's in are like, furry handcuffs. Furry yeah. handcuffs. Yeah. I just, you know, throw it <laughs> in for fun. Right. It was texture, really. Yeah. It's just texture. Yeah. He was, and he was having a good time right up until the part where he died yeah yeah he was really you know they brought but they brought him along on the chase like i appreciate that they included him in a lot that like the guy in the suit wasn't left behind you know they made sure to keep him involved in their activities and i do wonder and for fans of fury road i definitely think they would you know be entertained by this film and also go there are all similarities to certain shots yeah in the film especially things coming at the camera that i was like Oh, I wonder if George watched this movie. I mean, it definitely seems of his eclectic career between Happy Feet and Mad Max. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I imagine he probably would enjoy this movie. Exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I definitely, I mean, like, which is a really interesting recursive thing because then you get back, like, obviously this was very heavily inspired by Mad Max the first time around. So like, right? yeah, yeah. I, and it, the chase sequence, I mean, we don't, we I feel like we've talked about everything in this movie, but we haven't because like the chase sequence with the cars is this extended chase sequence, which you're not expecting either of like, right yeah no like you're pretty well like it's winding down yeah Yeah. and then you get this incredible car chase sequence which is again mostly practical and involves you know this whole like stunt driving and mad max vibes and it's and then of course you you know the car drives fully through a bus at one point and that's how it decapitates Saul it's just it's good stuff it's right yeah, this movie, this movie is does this great thing of like every time you think, okay, well, this was fine, we're almost done. It's like, hold on, I got one more dish for you, and it's a completely different food from what you've been eating the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. It's like you're going to a restaurant and someone's like, okay, the next course is going to be Chinese food, and you're like, wait, I'm sorry, we were just eating French cuisine, and then they're like, and next we're gonna have 
Ethiopian food. And you're like, this is also delicious and completely unrelated to everything we've eaten previously. Thank you. And that's right? kind of what watching this movie feels like in many ways. Like the fact that the knights don't show up, like guys in full fucking suits of armor don't show up until basically an hour and 15 minutes or an hour and 10 minutes into this movie. And you're just like, oh, we're doing medieval now. Great, I guess. Like, why not? Is I struggled at the beginning where you're like, this this movie. And I'm like, I have no idea. Because it's like one, two, three, four, five different movies all in one. Yeah. Like, there's so many different genres. And the storyline goes all over the place. And like you said, like, we'll go from an urban post-apocalypse story to a medieval uh, you know, uh, story to a Mad Max like car yeah. chase to a city in the middle of a disease out- outbreak. You know, all of these things just hops all over the place. Yeah, and I mean, as somebody who I, I, I think a lot of my writing is basically like like a magpie, just kind of taking shiny bits of things from other stuff I've really enjoyed and then putting it in and trying to like create my version of that. Um, without doing it in a Tarantino-y way. Um, <laughs> like, um, I think that's, I really like that because I do think there's a degree to which, like, that's a really fun, when you get to see that someone's like, no, this is just stuff I really like and wanted to get a chance to do. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's something I really appreciate about that, Um, as long as it's done earnestly. Yeah, absolutely. And I really want to applaud the writing to be able to do that in a way that I never, I never had a hiccup from the first time I saw the movie, like Mm -hmm. every time we change and I'm like, oh, okay, now they're all in knights in armor. Oh, oh, of course. Okay, now that totally makes sense. And then, oh, of course, you know, now we're in a car chase. And like, I didn't ever, it didn't ever feel incongruent there was like such a uh like I don't know if it would say care but just so wonderfully executed that we could just ride along through all of the different genre shifts and not have any real issue because we're so like a girl okay what's gonna happen next oh my god well with these guys doing and okay uh okay yeah so it yeah and while still like maintaining even the gear shifting between um, cause it is kind of a MacGuffin story, but like the yeah. MacGuffin changes a couple times through the story of like where the thing that they thought they were getting is going to change because now they're going to go talk to this guy. Oh, but actually they do have a survivor. So let's go ahead and we'll get that person out. And, you know, it did really, it, I, it, again, like, I love this movie. It's great. Yeah. It's fun. I mean, I, it's. I did definitely feel the 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 gear shifts a little bit of just like oh oh we're doing that we're going full st- like when the train shows up and I'm like oh steampunk all right I guess we'll do that for a couple minutes but it never bothered me I was having such a good time that I was like yeah I'm along on this ride it's sort of like you know the if you've ever been to Disneyland and you're on Mr. Toads and all of a sudden like you go to hell um and it's unexpected in Mr. Toads but the ride is so much fun that you're like oh shit we're in hell now. <laughs> okay this is horrifying but fun and that's to me what this movie kind of felt like was that like uh, 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 all right i'll catch up with what your vision was i guess um and yeah love love those aspects of it so did, would you if someone wanted to remake this movie would you fantasy cast at all or would you be like no this is perfect we can't touch it is there like a world a vision you have for this film 
it would be so difficult because so much of it i feel like so much of the context would shift first off if you relocated it to like america yeah then it would it would suffer a lot from being compared to escape from new york and uh and the implications and stuff would be would be different um i would i would love and I don't like at that point, I don't know if the casting would make that much of a difference because I'd want it to be New Zealand actors. But I would love to see something like this in New Zealand, mm-hmm. not Australia, because, again, obviously we've seen like the Mad Max. But I, uh, but like, again, like an island kind of nation, because I think that there is a context to that that is important about how, um, you know, a colony um, that is physically cut off from the rest of the world how it functions and chooses to operate under duress and crisis situations and obviously you know as we've seen with covid new zealand took some really uh strict uh measures but they weren't dystopianly strict measures yeah. and that they were somewhat successful and at least staving off covid um or at least the amount of death and stuff that uh, the rest of the world was experiencing. But it is one of those things that I think there's a, there's a certain type of uh, like people call it Kiwi humor. I, I think it's Maori humor that, um, that I think would be wonderfully like, you know, like Taika Waititi, if people are familiar with the type of like the balance of humor and also like deeper, uh, a deeper understanding of, systemic issues and whatnot it would be interesting to see that you know uh reflected in a story like this where it both is a post-apocalypse disaster movie and then also an ongoing you know governmental uh disease epidemic struggle situation with that, that like undercurrent of colonialism and what that means of understanding that even when you are a citizen of the state you really aren't you're still an expendable piece yeah and i'd love to have that that perspective from um you know from a new zealand filmmaker maybe not necessarily take it with tt although it'd be funny uh, yeah i mean his, <laughs> i think you'd have a lot of fun with it but he yeah he'd it, it'd be that like at this point he's kind of got a, a tone which is the only problem but like as a filmmaker i think he's so fun he like yes mm-hmm. i think he'd be he would be very good for that um but also there's probably other new zealand and maori yeah, yeah. there's yeah there's a lot of other creatives yeah. and again like with the casting it would be a whole different situation i would say that i'd love to see this type of um i would like to see well we talked about this i would love to see more movies especially like action films that um approach the female lead like eden um, right. Especially, it, I would love to see more action films. While I am a huge fan of action grandmas, I would also like to see more movies where a woman over 40 is the lead and it's yeah. not a thing where I, she has to protect her family. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> or, yeah. you know, like th- there's a whole other conversation to be had about how motherhood figures into you know our you know our understanding and ideas around motherhood figure into the genres of horror and action um but I really like how in this story we get to see a woman to some extent who also is that 
is that Danny Glover, I'm too old for this shit level of like kind of a veteran of the state, you know, violence. Right. I'd like to see that more with a woman and in more movies like this where um, I think that, oh, what what was that one with Charlize Theron? Uh, Atomic Blonde? Yes. I, like yeah. that hinted at it, like where she, like the scene with her in the bathtub where she's all bruised and stuff. And I was like, Okay, y'all, the action is interesting. All of her making out with beautiful women, great. But like this part of it, of like being the broken down action hero aspect, that and make that the movie. I need yeah. more of that, of like, because I don't think that we get to see women in that way. And also, like, we have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to uh, actresses, incredibly ta- talented actresses over 40 right now. Like, mm-hmm who like we need them to be able to play more than just grandmothers or lesbians you know I mean I right. like, love all the lesbians but like a lesbian with a shotgun okay there we go there's a there's a movie <laughs> for you right lesbian with a shotgun coming to theaters August 2024 there you go <laughs> no it's true especially because there's like so many action trained women who because we had such a boom of the like lady action hero in the early 2000s yeah mm-hmm. we absolutely like let's bring them back they're all they're all combat trained right no yeah. absolutely i'm like yeah all these ladies are Where's my lady die hard right i'm like yeah i look at how many women i saw reduced to tears seeing um the the women in uh fury road like mm-hmm. women with gray hair riding motorcycles and battling and i'm like yes <laughs> like we need a grant you know granny gang yeah <laughs> we need more of that to just see that reflected because that is a real experience that you know just because you turn a certain age doesn't mean that you can't or that, you, that you're not capable or that you're not in still in these uh, positions are capable of you know battling and and fighting and protecting and whatnot and yeah. that brings me can loop it back because um I do feel like the so the end of the film where she takes Saul's head and you know repeats the line that was said to her if you're hungry try a piece of your friend yeah and you know all of the cannibal punks cheer um I did feel like that too was also kind of a callback to um it's oh what is it it's why am I blanking oh Thunderdome yeah where we get speaking about an older woman in an action film in a position of power Tina Turner iconic iconic uh female warlord who's riding that balance between you know having uh, a balance of economy and also energy issues and politics within her town and like I wanted like if they were to do another film they're obviously going to do another film I'm like I would like a prequel about her character yeah the rise of the rise of Tina Turner absolutely right right like let's expand the universe especially since we've seen like with Furiosa we've seen that they can tell stories outside of Max in this world like oh but, but I want to know about it's. I think it's Mummy Fortuna. I, no. I, you're asking again. Another I know, I'm movie on the, somebody, on the litany of sure movies I haven't seen. Yeah, 
unfortunately <laughs> thunderdorm like that that's an entire genre of just films i have not watched yet but, uh, yeah, but see, just I have like the passing knowledge of like yes tina turner i've seen the photos of tina turner in it she's fucking fabulous so there's no question in my mind of like yeah i would let her rule me absolutely right chainmail dress oh yeah um i was gonna say like these these films, I do feel like, you know, every film that we listed as an influence for this, although I did went and check and um, Neil Marshall, the Neil Marshall, the writer director did say that Waterworld was a huge influence on this film. So you definitely called it with the uh, the gang feeling a lot like the smokers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. This but, no, this had heavy Waterworld, but like, which happy about Waterworld I, I'm now a foremost Waterworld fan right <laughs> so um I was thinking about like the list of films that influences and part of like what what is nostalgic about this movie to me is an aspect of being a Gen Xer that I don't think um we a Gen Xer from America that I don't think we talk a lot about of that um how like the fact that I grew up watching Mad Max movies I grew up like, I think I saw Escape from New York when I was 12, um, because anybody with an older sibling is going to end up walking in and being able to watch stuff with them that was on HBO. Of course. <laughs> right. And so, like, I grew up, uh, you know, and growing up in the, uh, you know, under the the weight of the Cold War, expecting the world to end and kind of like already planning how, you know, we'd make do like. Red Dawn, another movie I saw as a kid where teenagers are becoming freedom fighters and stuff like that. So like that perspective of A, growing up under Reagan, never trust your government, sure. <laughs> you know, um, always being ready for everything to fall apart and almost having a sense of humor about it because it's the only way you kind of can get through. Um, and then also under the shadow of the AIDS epidemic and just watching as your government lets people die. Like, like, I don't think, you know, with the generational memes and all that, I don't think that we're involved too much because we a don't want to be involved in the conversation. Um, but also, I do think that like a lot of the things that are happening now just feel like, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Been here. Done that. Yep. Nothing's not changed. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. I'm not even disappointed that nothing's changed. I'm just like. You know, even right now, I'm like, okay, let me have this whole conversation again 20 years later. You know? Right. Now that I'm, you know, in my 40s and I'm having the exact same conversations I had when I was in my 20s with people. But like, this is where, at, where it's at. And I do feel like, you know, that, that that mentality, that level of humor and also I wouldn't say nihilism because I think nihilism is a little too egotistical. <laughs> just of like, you know, slight, just like low level acceptance again yeah. like everything's fucked but it's kind of funny but like also you know if it means that you have to like take over a gang of teenage cannibal punks to just get shit done then uh, i guess that's what we're gonna do and i felt like i related a lot to eden of like of the you know ugh, okay, I guess I'll go over the wall and do this. Uh, okay, I guess you're we're doing the torture thing now. Uh, okay, well, let's go find this dude. Like, not really like a freedom fighter, like in it for the cause. It's just a job. Yeah. <laughs> she was doing her job and then she did her job and she got to fuck over her boss 
while doing your job. And that was nice. And that's the dream, really. Right. Like, what right. more do we really want? Right. She really did. Like, she did give her notice. I mean, they yeah. were kind of firing her, too. But she did give her notice and get to say, fuck you, boss, and then go off and and do her own startup. Uh, and yeah do her own her own cannibalism startup and you know she girl bossed and we love that for her right absolutely (laughs) (laughs) all right well i i have a hunch i know how many towering infernos you're going to give this movie but how many towering infernos are you giving doomsday obviously i'm going to give as many as possible (laughs) yeah you're giving it we're going with five five towering infernos today five out of five I I I I see nothing wrong with that. It's not going <laughs> to rank as high for me only because of the fact that it's not quite my thing. Um, but totally fair. Had a great time doing it for me. This is a very strong three point seven five, uh, which is to say that I had a much better time than I expected. It did everything very well. I don't know. I might bump this up to a four. Actually, yeah, this did better than it needed to. So I'm going to give it a four. Right. Had, yeah. It was more, That's, it was better it was than it had any right need- to be. That's the thing. And this was like way more fun than it needed to be. And it was way more fun than I think any other attempt at this would have been. So mm-hmm. yeah, let's give it a four. But Absolutely. yeah, Yay. it was a good time. Thank you so much for bringing this because it never would have occurred to me to watch this otherwise. So thank you. No, thank you for like, I was, when I suggested, I was like, I don't know, is it too soon? I mean, like, I find it really funny considering what's happening in the world right now, but it might be <laughs> so much, but thank you for sharing it with me. It is one of those things that I'm, I'm always like, I have to know somebody kind of well enough and know, and, you know, obviously through knowing you and then also, you know, seeing the podcast of yeah. the your reactions I was like I feel I feel like she would be somebody who would enjoy this and get what I'm talking about you know about it so thank you for appreciating it with me oh yeah that was a ride of a film what I mean what a time anyway um well thank you again is there anything before I send you off that you want to promote anywhere we can find you any last words from you about you know how to stay in touch with and keep keep up with all of your incredible insights into things well um i'm fangirl jean and that's fangirl j-e-a-n-n-e pretty much everywhere i'm now that nowadays i'm mostly on blue sky you can find me on tiktok i do a little bit of stuff there um and obviously uh fangirlgene.com i'll put updates of what i'm doing there uh, but you know, I'm I'm around. I'm surfing through the you know treacherous waters as everybody as everything's shifting in the social media landscape. Um, but if you want to keep you know abreast of what I'm doing, those are the platforms that I'll be updating. Fabulous. But again, thank you so much for having me on. I always enjoy talking to you. No, oh, thanks for being here. It was great. I really appreciate it. And I will be back next week with the final episode um, with guest Alex Steed. We're going to be talking about Piranha 3 Double D. Um, I couldn't think of a better movie for us to go out on, at least for the time being. I did agree um, on Twitter that I will bring the podcast back for Twisters when that comes out. Um, So keep an eye out for that. And then also, if you guys haven't seen it, the Academy Museum, if you live in L.A., the Academy Museum through the month of January is doing a um, series of disaster movies. That includes Twister on 35 millimeter, Volcano, which 
means we get to watch Volcano in the location where Volcano occurred. Um, and other disaster, disaster pod greats, uh, San Andreas, Deep Impact, Ashfall, which is one of my favorites. That was the South Korean movie about um, with, uh, what am I trying to say? The South Korean movie where they need to heist a nuclear bomb from North Korea and then um, insert it into a volcano. And it's like a mix of a buddy road comedy, a heist film, a geopolitical thriller. It's a great movie. So if you haven't, if you're in the LA area and you want to see that on the big screen, definitely do that. So check out, um, if you go to the Academy Museum, you can see all those listings and um, I guess reply on Twitter if you're interested, but I'm going to the volcano screening. So I think maybe we should do a meetup. I don't know. Um, if you guys are all interested in doing a meetup on the Saturday for the volcano screening, we can definitely do like a kind of fun disaster pod in memoriam situation. So um, let me know. Shoot me an email at disastergirlspod at gmail.com. I am disaster underscore pod on Twitter, and although I'm not really on Twitter much anymore. And then we are disaster girls on Blue Sky as well. Um, otherwise, oh, right. The other thing, um, the disastergirls.myshopify.com store will be staying up through the month of December. And then I will probably be pulling that in early January. So if you want to get anything from the site, now's the time to do it. And otherwise, I will see you guys all back next week for our final episode, uh, at least for the time being. Thanks. Bye, guys.